It is good to be back. It has been a long time. I'm actually surprised. Uh, I was looking at when I recorded the last episode, and it was, I think, last October. I was amazed by that, but time flies in podcasting world when you don't really have an idea, (laughs) An, an idea for an episode. It's exceedingly easy not to record an episode when you don't really have an idea. Just like it's easiest thing in the world if you're a writer is uh, not to write. But, you know, they're, they're really... Um, my life's not that different <laughs> from, the, from the last episode that I did. Um, there's an ironic, coincidental type of thing as I'm, you know, I'm already failing miserably here. Word choice. You know, I kind of dread doing this in a way (laughs) because it's, it's, it's so interesting in conversation with someone you're engaged, you're looking at their face um, (laughs) and you're listening to what they say and you're not as hung up on what you're saying. You're more thinking of like communicating something and, the words kind of, you know, the specificity of the language and the precision of your vocabulary is not of paramount importance. But then like doing this, I I just find myself like I'm, I'm, I'm like thinking mid sentence, like of, is this the proper, is this the best way? You know, I did it right there, proper, best, you know, like, and not saying, you know, or not saying, um, (laughs) Um, or, you know, or, or just kind of compensating for those ticks by being silent for awkward <laughs> stretches. Um, it's, it's hard, man. And until I, until I started doing this, I never respected, uh, or it made me respect radio hosts so much more. It's really hard to speak in an exporterraneous fashion for an extended period of time, even if you have a familiarity with the subject matter. Um, so I'll, I'll try my best, you know, like the, the last episode, I, I really screwed up on some names. It was the Bruce Springsteen episode. I, I uh, confused the uh, author's prominent from uh, <laughs> two prominent authors. I just totally like mixed them up for whatever reason. These things happen. I, I it's it's funny too because I'm really really proud of of this podcast. I like look at the episodes and I think they're quality. I really like the interviews I've done for sure. And these other kinds of episodes, which are kind of flying solo and just riffing. Um, I try to bring something more to the table than a mere opinion. I, I, I really, you know, I try to bring like source material. And that's why I love the, uh, the Chronicles uh, episode I did uh, where, I, where I talked about Oh Mercy, which again, I, I feel like, I, the reason why I really dug that episode too is I feel like that's not an album that's necessarily been the subject of like pot numerous podcast episodes. Um, excuse me. 
Sorry about that. <laughs> um, uh, Omercy kind of hasn't been put in the Dylan wheel and turned, you know, thousands of times compared to some of his other albums. And being able to bring Chronicles to that party only really solidified to me um, that I, I don't want to do episodes where I'm merely kind of giving my opinion uh, there's a ton of opinions obviously coming your way don't don't worry about that <laughs> um, but i like having like some kind of secondary source material um so it's more than just me uh, as much as i love myself <laughs> i mean why else would i be doing this now i'm just kidding um no 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 i don't you know that's the value system oh you know like i'm like going into you know that mode that's useless you know i've been trying to get away from that you know that kind of reflex action of being a self-flagellating or or uh conveying a low sense of self-esteem or whatever totally useless uh in anything <laughs> any phase of life that you're doing that you're in or anything you might be attempting uh, but it's it's reflexive um it's like ingrained culturally um that's like a whole different topic like where that comes from like why you know low a low self-esteem is, is is like almost like mandatory um outside of like a realm of expertise um you know like a craft or an expertise <laughs> a craft or you know an athlete great at what they do but like um uh and, and even someone like that obviously could have low self-esteem but you know what i mean like in certain things in life it's so useless to lack self-confidence that you really need to build confidence in order to do it but like i'm a i'm a writer for instance and a musician too and these are two things where again that kind of like you do have to again build up uh, ability in those areas uh, write a lot play a lot of guitar write many many songs but i feel like in in a more like artistic writing uh realm that kind of like again that's just like so like ingrained like oh i hate myself <laughs> or like yeah i i don't know i don't want to go too far um on a digression here from uh the original digression i made which was uh ironically when i recorded the bob dylan episode the yankees were playing the a's in last year uh, last june and they're actually going into a swoon in that point in time uh, after getting off to a phenomenal start to that season and i i think the day the day that i made the recording or possibly the night after the day i made the recording they oh no 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 it was maybe the night after uh, or it was the same day but they had their like worst loss of the season i, I still remember it I think they had Giovanni Gallegos in trying to get like the last two outs of an extra inning win. And uh, he gave up like four straight hits. And like the last one was like this blooper that Starling Castro, you know, he caught it and then it jumped right out of his glove as if it jumped right out of his glove, the ball, like, and they, and they lost um, hideously. And they had an extended stretch of futility from, 
really mid-June to the trading deadline. They played pretty well in August and played terrific in September uh, last year. But the ironic thing is I'm doing this episode tonight, and it's only the second episode since that recording. And uh, over a year later, and they're playing Oakland, and they just lost <laughs> today. But it was it was a garden variety loss. It was like as routine a loss as it gets and uh that's a whole another story they're having a very very good year uh 34 games above 500 it's a strange year in the american league the really good teams and there there's no there's kind of like no middle class it's almost like uh, american life 2018 it's like a it's like a mirror of it you're either really good or you're awful <laughs> that's that's a brutal way of saying it um but um there's there's not a lot of mediocrity in the american league so the yankees are 34 games above 500 but they only have uh i think three and a half game lead on the A's for uh, the first wild card position and they're well behind the Red Sox but the the thing is like everyone's records uh, a little inflated this year in the American League because there's three or four just atrocious teams that aren't even competitive so whereas your best teams would pick up you know three or four or five or six losses against like a team that goes you know 70 and 92 or 74 and 88 or 77 and 85 like those teams like are few and far between like the only team that's like actually genuinely mediocre this year in the al is uh the angels that's it they're like three games under 500 um so um you know, even though the Yankees are on this pace to win, you know, 9,900 games, they're still kind of fighting uh, to nail down home field advantage in the playing game, which is just one random game anyway. So who the fuck even knows what's going to happen? You know, they could get home field and lose. They could be on the road and win. Um, this is, you know, I spent so much of my time <laughs> watching this sport because I love it so much. Uh, I follow every game that I can and essentially... Um, they could easily fall well short of what they did last year, even though they have a much better team um, because they're in a one-game playoff. <laughs> uh, so that, that's how it goes. But, hey, there's no crying in baseball as, as a league of their own, I believe, uh, said that. Um, so I think that's going to be my, my introductory comments. I, I don't really have anything else to say about anything uh i am going to talk about a book i read recently in this podcast so i don't have to talk about that i've been to the movies once this summer Ah, what did i see man i don't even remember what i saw what did i see one went to the movies oh my god thinking man uh, the state of mainstream movies it's just oh yeah i saw the sequel uh, to sicario and it was nowhere near as good as as the first movie like not even close emily blunt was missed that character was missed that kind of um you know female presence uh among this kind of alpha male uh domination of the movie so like that wasn't there um there there was like other female characters but they're just 
you didn't really feel like you were getting a different perspective on the uh, Josh Brolin and Benicio characters uh, through like a different lens. Um, so that, that was, yeah. And for other reasons too, it just wasn't Sakari. The, uh, that was one of my favorite movies of the decade. Uh, I, yeah, I absolutely loved, uh, the first Sicario. This one is worth seeing, but it was a little gray on the grace. It was just so like, it was so kind of resolute in, in its dread, <laughs> basically, save for like a couple of small moments um, that it almost left me kind of feeling a little blank by the end. You know, the violence ramps up and um, it definitely got its point across. <laughs> uh, as the first one did too. Um, but no, not as good. Not as good. Uh, even though I, I really, really like the screenwriter a lot. Um, quite a bit. I really like what he's doing. I like the movies he's writing uh, quite a bit. But this one, it seemed like kind of, they are, I think they are going to do a trilogy. So I wouldn't be surprised if the third one um, returns to the quality of the first one to cap cap things off. And then the second one will kind of make more sense. It's kind of like a bridge between the first and third movies. Um, but yeah, so the concept of this episode, as you can see by the title, um, and if you can't see the title and you're wondering where this is going, I'm sorry. <laughs> and thanks for still listening for some reason, uh, cause I didn't explain what this episode was about on top of the episode. Um, but I came up, I finally, this idea kind of came out of nowhere after I kicked a few things around that I wasn't particularly enthusiastic about suddenly i was like i should talk about music when it's used in some of the best novels i've read and it really just came all at once like a flash of an idea i was like yes like i'm gonna do that and uh how to do you know how to revisit some books and uh you know kind of comb through them and find the scenes um the actual scenes when i thought about the book were pretty clear to me from from the jump of uh, what i was going to use though one of the books the one i read most recently which is a uh, jazz moon there's so many great music scenes in, in the book the the whole book's almost like a, a, a song in a, in a, in a, in a sense. Um, so much music and poetry. I, I did have to, I was like, which of these scenes? Um, but I, I think I, I found an ideal scene um, for the purposes of this podcast, uh, which I definitely know because I'm the host. <laughs> so I know what I'm doing. Okay, I know what I'm doing. God damn it. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I'm going to talk about brilliant uses of music in some of my favorite novels. And uh, the list is American Psycho by Bretty Stanellis, Another Country by James Baldwin, Jazz Moon by Joe Ocono, The Dead Do Not Improve by Jake Haspian and Kang, and a visit from the Goon Squad from uh, probably my favorite writer, Jennifer Egan. Um, all the writers 
here I think are phenomenal. Uh, she, I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of her, particularly. I, I, I actually, um, I like Look at Me more than A Visit from the Goon Squad. Um, I wonder if other, if there's any other Jennifer <laughs> fans out there, who, even though A Visit from the Goon Squad's amazing, uh, I was like, while rereading the scene, I'm gonna use. I was like, God damn, this is so good. Um, so I don't know, because I, I, I haven't reread it in a while. So maybe if I reread it, I would kind of alter my opinion on that and the new book was quite 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 good very very good uh, manhattan beach um so yeah those are the books i'm going to talk about um i'm also going to talk about like my relationship with the books i'll talk like a little about what was going on in my life when i was reading them possibly uh just kind of revisit like where i was because it, it kind of i think lend a personalized context to the proceedings uh which i think is you know essential <laughs> to talking about uh, novels it's hard to talk about a novel in a vacuum uh, i think that's like almost impossible the, that, that's something i find strange about uh film criticism that how that kind of approach in film criticism is uh, almost uniform the reviews kind of this uh it, it's it's cordoned off from the really from the rest of the critics life uh in a, in a critical uh discussion so i and I, I suppose yeah i mean there's probably different schools of thought i mean this i don't consider this critical though I, the idea that if, you know I, I mean i guess if you if you want to like look at it this way i mean these are books i love so I, I'm not exactly about to critique any of these writers. <laughs> um, even though, yeah, no one's perfect, obviously. Uh, they've, you know, I'm sure they they would say that themselves about you know the books as as they are, you know, as published. Uh, but more talking about these particular scenes and uh, again that my uh, relationship with them uh, while I was reading them and maybe like a little bit of how I feel about them now. Um, but yeah, I guess uh, without further ado. Um, I feel like this is maybe this uh, preamble falls a little short again of that Oh Mercy episode where I talked about almost getting in a car accident and that was like super interesting. I mean, uh, interesting thing did happen to me the other day <laughs> when I was uh, rollerblading. I was, um, I, was roller I, I started a dead end and I go across a highway uh, down by the marina I don't, I'm not on the highway I'm on a trail beside a highway uh, and I end up in an in a old military fortress uh, to finish things out but while I'm in the trail by the highway I, I do pass by a marina and I, and I get up to this uh, kind of construction fence uh, and I double back and I do the whole thing twice uh, but while I was uh, coming up to that fence uh, the other day there was a tow truck uh, parked in front of the fence and I, that's a pain in the ass because you know i i i'm like uh ocd uh so i want to get to the fence you know i want to get to the fence and do my little turn that's what i do every single time uh that's how i know uh, <laughs> everything's gonna be okay because <laughs> i got to do my little period wet oh man uh, so um, I couldn't go all the way to the fence, but the the, the really odd thing that happened was that the guy, um, the, this guy uh, driving the tow truck, uh, is imposing a uh, bald guy with a beard and uh, camo military shorts, and he had his window rolled down, and um, 
you know, uh, I, I kind of, um, I was approaching his, his truck and I did my little pirouette in front of his truck because that's what I had to do. I didn't have, I had to do my pirouette somewhere because I always do it and I have to do it. So I did it, I zip, you know, I did like my nice little, uh, I guess I could do like a figure eight or whatever and I stopped. <laughs> and um, the, the guy, um, I, I ended up like I was facing him and uh, he started talking to me. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, uh, you know, I don't, I don't mind when, <laughs> that was, my, that was my genuine, my genuine reaction. I, I don't mind when people talk to me when I'm skating at all. Uh, I talk to myself, uh, more often than not, um, while I'm doing it, uh, just cause it's, it's so brutal sometimes not to like, uh, you know, no, I'm saying this is like, it's just, um, I'm at my, I'm at the end of my rope now, right now, actually, I, I do it from February to, uh, mid to late October and I'm like totally burnt out. So I just have to like talk to myself sometimes to like keep myself from just focusing on how much it fucking sucks because <laughs> it's, it's so tiring, uh, and you know, and, and, uh, the whole deal, but the guy, yeah, he makes contact with me, and there's, like, another car parked off to the side, and this is, like, really weird, because it's, like, a dead end um, by a marina, and there's not supposed to be any cars uh, over here, even though there's, like, a parking lot about 20 to 25 feet away, and uh, the guy um, starts talking to me, and I'm kind of, like, not paying attention at first, because... Um, I know, like, whatever, you know, I'm kind of, like, in my own world or whatever. I'm in my, like, weird workout zone where I'm not, like, you know, like, really. So I'm like, oh, this guy's, like, just starting to talk to me. Like, and uh, he's like, he turned his fucking back on me. That's what he said. <laughs> That's what he said. He said, he turned his fucking back on me. And um, I was like, oh, man, like, is this guy talking about me right now turning my back on him? Because <laughs> I did my little spin and he didn't like that I turned my back on him, even though we weren't like talking at all. And then he's going on and he's like, you know, I, I fought for this country. I served. And um, I'm thinking this guy's what is going on because like if someone ever tried like kicking my ass <laughs> while I was on my rollerblades I would have no chance I'm on wheels and I'm not like the guy the the best character in Streets of Rage who may or may not have been called wheels oh uh, no that's Streets of Rage 2 I'm sorry about that one of the best soundtracks in video game history but one of the characters was on roller skates and he would like fuck people up like on his roller skates and that game was awesome it was one of the best games in, in the arcade uh, without a doubt uh, at, at your local pizzeria in queens or at you know peter pan's arcade uh in bayside but um i you know i i can't do a goddamn thing all i could really do is if anyone ever tried attacking me was i, I would have to try to skate away really fast I would, I would have to outrun somebody like running uh, with an intent to beat me up um, and like I, I guess I do like think about these things sometimes um, <laughs> um, but but it turned out he's going off on the guy who's parked in the other car the black jeep off to the side and that gentleman is just sitting in his car with, with the windows rolled up um, and the guy in the tow truck is going off about how he pulled up alongside that guy because his car had died um, by the dead end, which is really odd. 
and um, the guy's going on and on. Uh, or no, the, <laughs> that guy's not going on and on. He's uh, trying. They're trying to get his car started, and then the guy said he was trying. the The bald dude said he was trying to explain something about four wheel drive, and um, the guy turned his back on him and uh that enraged him uh and he felt the need to voice it to me and then he got out of the car (laughs) and again keep in mind i'm on my skates here um so i'm kind of like backing up away from this large man who kind of remind me of the thing from the fantastic four (laughs) that was the kind of build he had he had you know and um i'm back i'm kind of like just backing up on my skates it was really it was really really ridiculous but i'm also like trying to talk him down too i'm like yeah man like see i'm trying to like toe the delicate balance because like if you tell someone who's enraged to like calm down they flip out like every single time if you're like hey man calm down he's like calm down like they always yell calm down back at you so i never say calm down (laughs) to, to an angry person anymore whoever it might be i try to like respect the anger so i was like yeah i understand man like there's some eccentric <laughs> this is what I, this is what i actually said i said there's some real eccentric people around here like referring to the people who like exercise down by the highway down by by this trail uh by the throgs neck bridge I, I said there's some real eccentric people around here i'm one of them so like i understand your frustration <laughs> so i basically again with like that like weird like like reflexive value system of like hey like i can understand sir why an irrationally angry volatile person like yourself would be mad at this guy who could also kind of be like me and that's why you might be mad at him and that like should calm me down because like i i know like uh i'm someone worth being pissed at so like that was my um brilliant strategy but you know like i don't know like how um serious i can be in talking about this incident because he eventually um kind of like threw the he threw the chain of his of the tow truck like the chain that goes on the back you like threw it around the back of the truck and like wrapped it around the back of the truck uh, and then he got back in the car and he drove away and um I actually saw him today while I was exercising. He was like happily like uh, towing somebody away from the marina. <laughs> it's, it's weird. These like weird like micro episodes I have in like the small, you know, like Queens, the neighborhoods are, are basically like small towns or like urban small towns. So these are the episodes I have. But I mean, I feel like if I can connect this to anything like somewhat meaningful, this particular antidote uh before i start talking about like the really important uh shit here like like people i feel are like crazy right now like um and maybe i'm just like perceiving it more for whatever reason uh at the stage of of life that i'm in like you 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 just kind of see more and more things that make you just like baffled uh about human behavior but like i feel like we're at a volatile point and it's like showing up in like day-to-day life more and i I don't know like if people are like listening out there and you know maybe you're like nodding your head right right now you're like totally like people are like flying off the hill to the point where like this guy was like angry 
like he was angry and like maybe the guy just like turned around to like look at the car like maybe they had like the hood up and like the guy was talking and he like turned around to like get a look at his engine or or something and like that's like you know to to be that angry about something um is strange about something like that is 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 odd and um i i just feel you know like just odd things like odd like little like again like micro like behaviors like in the neighborhood that i live in there's they must be like this roving pack of teenagers or whatever setting off fireworks like four or five times a week it's just like normal part of life at this point and like my dog like freaks out and she's getting older and i I feel terrible for her because she shakes and i get like so mad at like whoever's doing i'm like who is doing this why like why (laughs) i want to track them down like you know that video game character max Payne. grab him by the shirt collar in a greasy diner and put him up against why are you doing it man why do you keep setting off these fireworks what's your agenda you know but like um it's just i almost felt like when i was a kid the when i was a teenager and i was growing up in queens and uh, the war you know you had 9-11 happen obviously um in 2001 but then 2004 you know the war goes on you know like you know the the campaign begins and you know these these moments of uh (laughs) you feel like the 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 really a thin fabric of civilization (laughs) like being stretched and tearing um and like it's nothing like you know it's nothing like you know like um you know like a other more serious uh, again it's not like this micro level uh it's nothing like a protest you know like a protest that turns you know into violent you know or or things like that or or some kind of uprising like uh, nothing's at that point uh you know uh, on a daily basis (laughs) right now but again like on that micro level interactions with uh, strangers at times um there's this like bewildered sense of anger almost it's like bewildered this like rage that has like almost no logic behind it it's just this expression of utter you know discontent um and i'm seeing i feel like i'm seeing that more and more and this like incident like kind of like like falls into that uh kind of random uh, you know, it stuck with me uh, as it was going on <laughs> and, and, and in the aftermath. And I thought that could be a great thing to talk about. Uh, similar to that time I almost crashed my car a couple of days after I, I got a physical that said I was like doing great. <laughs> yeah, it's like a humorous thing. Um, but yeah, like... Um, I think like as I, as I look back to on being like 15 or 16 um, it, there's a similar feeling in the air 
when that was going on and you know three years after 9-11 happened and the close correlation uh the exact proximity really of uh you know sequence of events uh the from 9-11 to the war in iraq and uh this excuse me that feeling uh similar that aimless uh anger of which i you know i participated in myself um when i was like 15 or you know 16 17 in that, in that time period um i don't know if things are different for kids now but i i it's, it's your per- perception of things uh, get older and you're like oh like the 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 someone's perception of what the world is has a huge impact on their behavior. Um, so it might be different, you know, for like a teenager now compared to one in like 2012 when, you know, the, the, the veneer of things seemed to probably more solidified. So just uh, food for thought. Um, but on, the, on that kind of note, um, I would like to start the subject matter of this episode uh, in earnest and start talking about American, start by talking about American Psycho and uh, the use of a particular scene, uh, which <laughs> I fucking, I love this scene too. It's so funny. I haven't read this book in so long, man. Um, and I really am on myself here to like not give a summary of the books, especially because in the case of uh, American Psycho, the three cases of American Psycho is from the Goon Squad and the Dead Do Not Improve. I, I read these like years ago, so I'm I'm like loath to even attempt like giving like a summary of what goes on in the book. I mean, a lot of people probably have a basic grasp on what American Psycho is about, um, but I don't want to sit here and say, well, this character, you know, this book is this character. Uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, I'll do that maybe if I feel like it's appropriate to like what this what's going on in the scene, um, but. I really want to talk about before I talk about the the U two scene, which is the scene uh, I'm using for for this podcast on you know you know brilliant uses of music in 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 great novels. Um, I read this book when I was I think seventeen uh, or sixteen, and it's funny I was just talking about that time period. It's like a totally like unplanned coincidence. Um, I actually had it for a long time before that. <laughs> I bought it when I was like 14 or 13. As you know, like that's a tough book to read when you're like 13 or 14 years old. And um, I only combed through it. I kind of read it in a fractured way when I was like at that even like younger age. Um, and, I, and, and the crazy thing about that is like you can really read the book like that. Because the book is is um, it proceeds in that fashion where it is linear, but what's going on in Patrick's life is it's, it's like so empty and like meaningless <laughs> that like you almost don't have to read it in order. So it's kind of interesting that like that way that I was reading it when I like just picked it up and I would probably just said to myself, "This is like." a big book i'm not like gonna read this i'm not gonna like read this like from beginning to end um at at that point uh that that was actually like a 
you know, a valid way of like experiencing the book, I think. And, um, I, the, I, at that point I, I read the child, uh, the scene where the, the he kills the, the little kid at the zoo and it's so horrible. I mean, and, um, it's just, you know, it, it, it's, it's as advertised, <laughs> you know, the, the heading, um, and, uh, dark, extremely, extremely dark. And, I was just, just like, all right, like, I'm, I don't know, this book's kind of fucked up. I'm not going to, I don't think I want to read this. Um, I, I think so. I put it away uh, on the shelf for a few years. Um, and I had seen the movie at that point. Um, again, when I was like a young preteen or whatever. And then like, I saw the movie, I started liking the movie more and more. The more I, I watched it and I could kind of understand a little bit more how great that movie is um you know when i was like 16 17 you know so well directed um the, the shot of bateman running between the <laughs> the two towers um amazing uh that's one of my favorite shots uh, in any movie um and the whole movie's like great but i think you know my fondness for the movie led me i, I remember i was i was just like let me let me try to read i want to like read this again <laughs> <laughs> I want to try reading this again because I'm you know, older. Uh, I can just do it. And it was very, I mean, I have, uh, I'm not a prolific reader of novels uh, to begin with, um, especially compared to like other writers, probably. Uh, I've read two this summer and I think that's fantastic because <laughs> that's like, you know, that's really good for me. Like two and like four or five months or six months is like phenomenal, uh, right for me. Uh, so I can really take a while to read, uh, a novel, uh, even now, uh, 30 right now. Uh, so this book was really tough for me to read when I was like, 17 and not just because of the violence because at that point it's like whatever you're doing like your whole like like alpha male thing anyway like i you know at that point it's just like oh so what you know like it's violent oh, that's that's funny like you know what i mean like that would kind of be uh the reaction to it which is again you know uh reaction the author would probably find really interesting um you know, having that kind of reaction to it, like, oh yeah, like I'm, you know, this doesn't bother the violence. Like I, 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 uh, I'm not affected by the violence because uh, that would offend my sensibilities as this kind of whatever situation I was I was doing at, at that point. Um, self uh, perception or external appearance that I wanted to have to myself. <laughs> let alone other people um so it was really hard for me to read and um when i was you know i was still years away from really significantly investing in novels and prose as a writer novels as a reader so it was a battle i was able to finish the book uh which i was really really pleased by Excuse me, I got a throat situation going on. <clears throat> Sorry about that. Um, and I remember being moved by the scene of him and Jean uh, towards the end of the book when he's basically in love with her. 
uh, he knows he's in love with her and he's you know they're sitting together i think they're having lunch and you know and he's thinking about love almost like for the first time it seems like he's thinking about love for the first time um and he doesn't know what to make of it uh patrick Pavin, and we don't really ever really know what to make of him uh whether he's an actual murderer or not uh, that's kind of the mystery of the book uh, and the movie as well. We're talking about the book here, goddammit. Books, book and the movie are really different. Um, I like remember that still, like you know, even even though it's been like years. Again, it's been like I think eleven, you know, twelve, twelve years or whatever since I since I read this novel. Uh, as as great as the the movie is, the the book is harrowing. <laughs> in ways that the movie really couldn't be in order to kind of work as a movie. It couldn't be, I, I, I think they kind of made the right decision because they couldn't have a lot of the kind of the value they're going for, you know, as like a work of satire, as like a commentary of uh, American life at that point in time and going forward and, the you know, that, that kind of feeling like the book could do that, but it also could be this like, absolutely absolute nightmare it's a violent fucking nightmare um and that's like that's novels are so flexible in that way and that's why it's such an amazing art form because like you can get away with things that you can't do like really because like a you know and you could do that in a movie like too but like the movies um you can play around with tone way more in a novel and i don't do that myself i pick a tone and i stay with the tone um the whole the whole way um because it, it almost takes like almost like a like a schizophrenic gift i feel like to kind of like screw around with tone in the same book uh that's like really hard to do and pull off i actually and i'm not saying it's like actual schizophrenic but it's like this ability to kind of you know make one thing so real and then like and then also like spin another plate of reality in the same thing whereas like i i feel like it's hard enough just to get that one tone established um so and and ellis um forget it like he does like things that are you know just in the scene that i read um that are you know really Oh, I, I was thinking of a way to describe it while I was uh, walking my, my beautiful dog tonight. Uh, if Patrick Babin came near my dog, I would, oh, man, I'll tell you what, under the streetlight, man, it'd be, it'd be mano y mano uh, before he could get to my dog. I'll, I'll tell you that. Because uh, that's another just, oh, my God, horrible scene just in this book. Horribly violent um, scene. Um among many uh so anyway um he yeah he, uh, from a writing standpoint he he does that he's able like you know i don't i i was kind of going to save this point for after i read the scene but he he does the kind of impressionistic epiphany personal realization thing that's like kind of a hallmark of prose writing really <laughs> in a, in a, like especially in a modern sense and like for him to do that like in this in this book and with this character there's like a transgressive quality to that uh, that almost like challenges that 
form, uh, the, that form of writing that way by giving this character those moments it's it's it, it it's uh it make, you know it's squirm worthy because it's like it's like this monster is capable of having an epiphany and it's disturbing um it really is <laughs> just, there's no other way of describing it. and they're and they're well done they're not like they're not like tacked on they're like i feel um that they're the the work that was done in writing those moments was like sincere work uh it, was, it wasn't i don't think it's satirical at all like if it is then i'm kind of lo- like i'm lost on this point uh because i i do like because as i mentioned the writing with the scene with gene which again i haven't read that in 12 years but i remember it being you know amazing um and working on that level um and again if bateman is just a troubled person that makes a lot of sense you know if, if he's someone who just doodles in a book in his office um and he has violence uh on his mind and almost violence is like kind of a part of him um and when you when you look at the character that way it gets even more interesting i i feel like that's why it's possibly like kind of preferable to look at the character that way because you know like it cuts it cuts deeper um pun <laughs> pun intended maybe <laughs> i don't know but it i think it cuts deeper for the reader to, to consider you know the violence that could be inside them and uh what what that means and where it comes from uh what is it is it primal is it is it culturally um driven is it a combination of both Okay, or would one be a factor in the consciousness of like a modern person without the other? Like, I feel like it opens uh, things up. Uh, and he didn't want to just put it out there, I, I suppose. Um, uh, it's kind of left, again, like, you know, like all great, like the ending of The Sopranos. Like, what, you know, like, is it, you may make of it what you will, you know, like, there's, there's you know, a lot of, there, there's, you have to have, like, a lot of restraint to do that. Especially, again, when you're dealing with this character, that would be easier uh, to say, like, oh no, like, this is what's going on for sure, one way or the other, uh, to kind of leave it open. Um, and another, th- one other thing I want to mention, and again, because I haven't read this in, in a long time and I want to get caught. Uh, extrapolating about you know moments that like are really foggy in my memory but something that also the novel does that the movie kind of only really approximates in one moment like towards the end of the film when he's on the phone and uh, Christian Bale who's ama- amazing in the movie and he's like just say no <laughs> and he's kind of freaking out there's there's other and he's you know totally freaking out um, having like a breakdown the novel is actually like loaded with those kinds of moments where the urbanity of his life, the, the, the nonstop kind of, um, movement and, you know, nausea, almost like emotion sickness and, uh, really like the, 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 the heat and the activity and being on a crowded street and garbage and you know homelessness and um the the book's also phenomenal when it dives into like those moments as well there's actually like a scene 
with with a with a cabbie um that's like amazing that i that i remember is kind of like yeah, it's uh, the, the cab driver has like mental illness and you know him and Damon like get into it and it's it's like there's just so many like visceral like jarringly visceral like moments in the book in the book um so yeah you know it's, it's controversial obviously <laughs> it's a controversy I mean you know like uh, but let me, um, I'm going to read this particular scene having to do with the podcast. And uh, that's the way uh, the, the book uses uh, music in a, in a scene. And uh, man, I'm just going to go into it. But after having not read this book in such a long time, I was so struck by how funny the scene is. The scene is hilarious. It's so fucking funny. <laughs> and like that's another amazing thing right it's really really funny um and it's so satirical too um so concert everyone is very excuse me i'm gonna move the microphone yeah okay now control <laughs> i had to move the microphone so i can read everyone is very uptight at the concert, Carruthers drags us to a New Jersey this evening, an Irish band called U2, who were on the cover of Time magazine last week. Also, like, in uh, the, there's so many uh, italic, use of italics, it just gets funny after a while, too. You start just laughing every time there's an italics. just the, the absurdity of our fucking society, basically. It's just like how, you know, like some, you know, the, the official uh, nature, is, uh, you know, of things you know uh, the the like kind of like the implication of a lack of humanity in the official in something being official you know like a corporate official or whatever so the tickets were originally for a group of japanese clients who canceled their trip to new york at the last minute making it virtually impossible for carruthers or so he says to sell these front row, row seats <laughs> and that's like funny because like they're such assholes they don't even want front row tickets to a concert so it's carruthers and courtney paul owen and ashley cromwell and evelyn and myself Earlier, when I found out that Paul Owen was coming, I tried to call Cecilia Wagner, Marcus Halvestram's girlfriend, since Paul Owen seems fairly sure that I am Marcus, and though she was flattered by my invitation, I always suspected I was one of her crushes. <laughs> and keep in mind, this guy might be a fucking psychic, you know, an utter, unredeemable, unrepentant, evil fucking person. <laughs> I always suspected I was one of her crushes. She had to attend a black tie party for the opening of the new British musical, Maggie. But she did mention something about lunch next week, and I told her I would give her a call on Thursday. I was supposed to have dinner with Evelyn tonight, but the thought of sitting alone with her during a two-hour meal fills me with a nameless dread and so i call and reluctantly explain the schedule changes and she asks if tim price is coming and when i tell her no there's the briefest hesitation before she accepts and then i cancel a reservation gene made for us at h2o the new clive powell restaurant in chelsea and leave the office early for a quick aerobics class before the concert none of the girls are particularly excited about seeing the band and all have confided in me separately that they don't want to be here. And in the limousine heading towards some... This line is so funny. Because, like, it's so... I feel like if you laugh at this line, 
you'll probably like really you'll get with the book as a whole like this line is so funny in the limousine heading towards somewhere called the Meadowlands. like the implication being that this guy is such a manhattan like asshole that he's never been like new jersey which is like a 10 minute train ride away from manhattan's like this other universe and somewhere called the meadowlands the the big ass stadium in new jersey where the giants and jets play and where they used to do concerts there's a new stadium there now but like you know like that like that like sums up also just the kind of over the top like satire that's like going on like there's no way that even the most like pretentious like co- corporate like business person asshole in Manhattan would obviously know what the Meadowlands is. You know what I mean? But like he says like somewhere called the Meadowlands. You know, uh, with that being the implication, like it, it's 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 very very funny and like again it kind of points you to what the book's trying to do in a way with the, with the character uh it's this mix of you know hyper realism with un, you know totally satirical unrealism carruthers keeps trying to placate everyone by telling us that donald trump is a big u2 fan and then even more desperately that john gutfriend also buys their records <laughs> I don't know who that is, but it's still funny. A bottle of Cristal is open, then another. The TV is turned to a press conference Reagan's giving, but there's a lot of static and no one pays attention, except for me. He's such a true, true blue Republican. The Patty Winter show this morning was about shark attack victims. <laughs> Paul, Paul Owen has called me Marcus four times, and Evelyn, much to my relief. Uh, Cecilia twice, but Evelyn doesn't notice, and she's been glaring at Courtney the entire time we've been in the limousine. Anyway, no one has corrected Owen, and it's unlikely that anyone will. I even called her Cecilia a couple times myself when I was sure she wasn't listening while she was staring hatefully at Courtney. Carruthers keeps telling me how nice I look and complimenting my suit. Evelyn and I are by far the best dressed couple. I'm wearing a lamb wool top, top coat. This is very important now. You have to read the, the fad. This is the most important thing in the lives of these characters. So I have to read this with a proper amount of respect here. A wool jacket with wool flannel trousers, a cotton shirt, a cashmere v-neck sweater, and a silk tie, all from Armani. Evelyn's wearing a cotton blouse by Dolce Cabana, suede shoes by Yves Saint Laurent, a stenciled calf skirt by Adrian Landau with a suede belt by Jill Stewart, Calvin Klein. It's so funny. I can't tell you how funny this book is. Venetian glass earrings by Francis Pataki Stein and clasped in her hand is a single white rose that I bought at a Korean deli before Carruthers limousine picked me up. Carruthers is wearing a lamb's wool sport coat, a cashmere slash Vicuna cardigan sweater, Calvary twill trousers, <laughs> a cotton shirt, and a silk tie, all from Hermes. How tacky, Evelyn whispered to me. I silently agreed. Courtney is wearing a triple-layer silk organdy top and a long velvet skirt with a fishtail hem. <laughs> velvet ribbon and enamel earrings by Jose Maria Barrera, gloves by Portolano, and shoes from Gucci. Paul and Ashley are, I think, a bit overdressed 
and she has sunglasses on, even though the windows in the limo are tinted and it's already dusk. She holds a small bouquet of flowers, daisies Carruthers gave her, which fail to make Courtney jealous, and she seems intent upon clawing Evelyn's face open, which right now, though it's, a, it's the better-looking face, seems not a bad idea, and one I wouldn't mind watching Courtney carry out. Courtney has a slightly better body. Evelyn, nicer tits. The concert has been dragging on now for maybe 20 minutes. <laughs> I hate live music, but everyone around us is standing, their screams of approval competing with the racket, <laughs> the racket coming from the towering walls the speakers stacked over us. The only real pleasure I get from being here is seeing Scott and Anne Smiley ten rows behind us in shittier, though probably not less expensive seats. Carruthers changes seats with Evelyn to discuss business with me, but I can't hear a word, so I exchange seats with Evelyn to talk to Courtney. Lewis is a weasel, I shout. He suspects nothing. <laughs> this is great. The Edge is wearing Armani, she shouts, pointing at the bassist. That's not Armani, I shout back. It's Emporio. No, she shouts, Armani. The grays are too muted, and so are the toops and the neves. I don't know what the fuck those are. Definite winged lapels, subtle plaids, polka dots, and stripes are Armani, not Emporio, I shout, extremely irritated that she doesn't know this. Can't differentiate. Both my hands covering both ears. There is a difference. <laughs> Which one's the ledge? The drummer might be the ledge, she shouts. I think. I'm not sure. I need a cigarette. Where were you the other night? If you call, if, if you tell me with Evelyn, I'm going to hit you. The drummer is not wearing anything by Armani, I scream, or Imperio for that matter. Nowhere. I don't know which one the drummer is, she shouts. Ask Ashley, I suggest screaming. Ashley, she screams, reaching over across. <laughs> I don't know which one the drummer is. I mean, just think about that for a second. <laughs> I mean, can we appreciate that line for one second? I don't know which one the drummer is. <laughs> <laughs> which one's the ledge ashley shouts something at her that i can't hear and then courtney turns back to me shrugging she said she can't believe she's in new jersey carruthers motions for courtney to change seats with him she waves the little twit away and grips my thigh which i flex rock hard <laughs> and her hand lingers admiringly <laughs> but lewis persists <laughs> This is so funny. And she gets up and screams at me. I think we need drugs tonight, I nod. The lead singer, Bono, is screeching out what sounds like where the beat sounds the same. Evelyn and Ashley leave to buy cigarettes, use the ladies' room, find refreshments. Lewis sits next to me. The girls are bored, Lewis screams at me. Courtney wants us to find her some cocaine tonight, I shout. Oh, great. Lewis looks sulky. Do we have reservations anywhere? <laughs> Brussels, he shouts checking his rolex but it's doubtful if we'll make it if we don't make it i warn him i'm not going anywhere else you can drop me at my apartment we'll make it he shouts if we don't what about japanese i suggest relenting there's a really top sushi bar on the upper west side blades chef used to be at isoto it got a great rating in zagat bateman i hate the japanese carruthers screams at me one hand placed over an ear little slanty-eyed bastards what i scream in the hell are you talking about oh i know i know he screams eyes bulging they save more than we do and they don't innovate much but they sure in the fuck know how to take steal our innovations improve on them then ram them down our fucking throats <laughs> worst people on the planet <laughs> i stare at him disbelieving for a moment then look at the stage at the guitarist running around in circles Bo bono bono's arms <laughs> 
Oh, I'm having trouble pronouncing Bono Bono. Bono's arms outstretched as he runs back and forth across the length of its edge, and then back at Lewis, whose face is still crimson with fury. <laughs> and, he's, and he's still staring at me wide-eyed, spittle on his lips, not saying anything. What in the hell does that have to do with blades, I ask finally, genuinely confused. Wipe your mouth. That's why I hate Japanese food, he screams back. Sashami, California roll. Oh, Jesus. He makes a gagging motion with one finger going down his throat. Carruthers, I stop, still looking at him, studying his face closely, slightly freak out, unable to remember what I wanted to say. What, Bateman? Carruthers asked, leaning in. Listen, I can't believe this shit, I scream. I can't believe you didn't make reservations for later. We're going to have to wait. What, he screams, cupping his ear as if it makes a difference. We're going to have to wait, I scream louder. This is not a problem, he shouts. The lead singer reaches out to us from the stage, his hand out stretched and I, I wave him away go away go away <laughs> you're trying to connect with me go away it's okay it's okay no Lewis you're wrong it's not okay I look over at Paul Owen who seems equally bored his hands clamped over both ears but still managing to confer with Courtney about something by the way something about this scene too like that's also subtle because like they're it's like subtler uh, than like you know, but like within the you know, kind of like over the top satire that's going on. Here we have somebody, he's genuinely upset that they're going to have to wait on their dinner reservations after his friend just had a racist rant that he couldn't quite make sense of because it didn't have to do with the restaurant. So just like, you know, that's like, it's like funny, but like, it's also like, this like disturbing because like again like this satire is reflective of reality it's expert satire we won't have to wait lewis screams i promise promise nothing you geek i screamed then is paul owen still handling the fisher account i don't want you to be mad at me patrick lewis screams desperately it'll be all right <laughs> that's italicized for some reason the all is italicized oh jesus forget it i scream now listen to me is paul owen still handling the fisher account Carruthers looks over at him and then back at me. Yeah, I guess. I heard Ashley has chlamydia. I'm going to talk to him, I shout, getting up, taking the empty seat next to Owen. But when I sit down, something strange on the stage catches my eye. Bono has now moved across the stage, following me to my seat, and he's staring into my eyes, kneeling at the edge of the stage, wearing black jeans, maybe Gatano, sandals, a leather vest with no shirt beneath it. His body is white, covered with sweat, and it's not worked out enough. There's no muscle tone, and what definition there might be is covered beneath a paltry amount of chest hair. He has a cowboy hat on, and his hair is pulled back into a ponytail, and he's moaning some dirge. I catch the lyric, a hero is an insect in this world, and he has a faint, barely noticeable, but nonetheless intense smirk on his face, and it grows, spreading across it confidently, and while his eyes blaze, the backdrop of the stage turns red, and suddenly I get this tremendous surge of feeling, this rush of knowledge and i can see into bono's heart i did it again bono's heart and my own beats faster because of this and i realize that i'm receiving a message of some kind from the singer it hits me that we have something in common that we share a bond and it's not impossible to believe that an invisible cord attached to bono bono why do i keep doing that what the fuck is wrong with me has now encircled me and now the audience disappears and the music slows down gets softer and it's just bono singing on stage bono singing on stage <laughs> 
The stadium is deserted, the van fades away, and the message, his message, once vague, now gets more powerful, and he's nodding at me, and I'm nodding back, everything getting clearer, my body alive and burning, on fire, and from nowhere a flash of white and blinding light envelops me, and I hear it, can actually feel, can even make out the letters of the message hovering above Bono's head <laughs> in orange wavy letters. I am the devil, and I am just like you. And then everyone, the audience, the band, reappears, and the music slowly swells up. And Bono, sensing that I've received the message, I actually know that he feels me reacting to it, is satisfied and turns away, and I'm left tingling, my face flushed, an aching erection pulsing against my thigh, my hands clenched in fists of tension, but suddenly everything stops as if a switch has been turned off. The backdrop flashes back to white. Bono, the devil, is on the other side of the stage now, and everything, the feeling in my heart, the sensation combing my brain, vanishes, and now more than ever I need to know about the Fisher account that Owen is handling, and this information seems vital, more pertinent than the bond of similarity I have with Bono, who is now dissolving a remote. I turn to Paul Owen. So, that'll be the end of the reading. Um, so, and like, I'm, I'm so fascinated, again, by like those moments in the book where Baben's like, humanity's not totally gone. It's like submerged um, under this artifice which has actually like become him um and uh you know i i you know like that's the crazy thing about this book it like does those moments like extremely well with the satirical writing and of course the extremely disturbing violent things uh that are going on uh, throughout the pages of the book so that's american psycho um and uh, that was the use of me. I had something else. Oh, yeah. Just, like, one other thing, too. Like, because um, I, I do realize, and hold on, I just have to take a sip of water. This is a controversial book because of the violence. But where Ellis has an amazing point is the way people read this book people really read this book and they don't see it as a satire i was even on a back back in the days where imdb had message boards remember that <laughs> and um there was you know i was going through the message board for american psycho and there was this guy who wrote this well-written you know for imdb <laughs> for posts on imdb you know like it was this well-written like kind of um thesis on like why he didn't like the movie compared to the book and he said like you know the book the characters lives are like larger they like do things like go to like youtube concerts you know in the front row and but like the guy was like really into it like that was the point like <laughs> he got like something out of kind of um what's the word i'm looking for um oh man god vicarious thank you very much sorry about that i did not pull out a dictionary or the source or do a google search but he got a vicarious kick 
out of Patrick Bateman's world. Whereas, like, when you read who these people are, they're so devoid of character uh, in, in the sense of a word of probably being, like, literary characters. They're flat for a reason. <laughs> you know, like, that's the purpose of the book. Um, but also, like, you know, character as in, like, the stuff of a person. <laughs> You know, like, uh, you know, and, and um, because I feel like the Ellis's point is proved uh, in those readings of the book. It's proved in someone reading and utterly, I managed not to laugh while I was reading. I laughed out loud hard when I was like reading it last night when he, she has his hand on his thigh and he flexes a muscle and then she like... <laughs> <laughs> you know people read like there's dudes who like read that and are like yeah like that's a man you know and like that's his point um because it, like is that who they really are or have they kind of become like an artifice become person uh where there's still obviously like a person in there of course like no one like loses their humanity but like your external process it, or, or like your internal process is like becoming like this external like your external face in the world has like become you uh completely uh down to like you know i don't know it's it's hard to say but like these are the things like the the book um makes me think and, I, and I, again i think those types of readings are you know instead of like you know again like no one can ever wait to you know blame a writer blame an artist uh when you know who knows what happens like i feel like when people i'm not saying there's a right or wrong way to read anything and i'm not saying the way that i'm reading it is correct and the way someone else might read it is wrong but i think what i'm talking about is ob objectivity so whether or not you want to find it funny like maybe the sense of humor you don't have like a, t a dark sense of humor you just don't think it's funny or whatever but i think like to have like no objectivity and lose yourselves in the opulence or lose yourselves in, you know, Patrick Bateman's workout regimen and his kind of robotic lack of, of a conscience because that for, you know, a male is like something to uh, strive for. Um, and that's like ingrained, uh, you know, like not for everybody but like a lot of people like depending on the environment you're in you know like you, you feel bad like you feel weak you feel like bad about having hurt somebody or done something that you think is wrong or you want to like be better it's like weakness it's like no you're a man you didn't do anything wrong like <laughs> so you can see why a character who doesn't even have the conscience to think about like right or wrong seemingly uh, while he still does have these kind of impressionistic moments of, of like self-awareness that he's still a human being <laughs> like he he doesn't seem to like possess like a conscience um and that's like appealing to people and they read the book as like a celebration of, of this guy um and that i think in and of itself uh more probably than any good review probably proves uh brady snell's point <laughs> or or you know like you know so yeah uh, that, that's it um that's all i got on uh american psycho um and maybe you know, i'm sure i will try to read it again one day i i don't um i tend not to reread a lot of books because 
there's so much I haven't read. <laughs> and I, like I said, I don't read a lot anyway. So I just try to just read new shit all the time. Um, so the next book I'm going to talk about. Let's take another sip of water. <laughs> this is not an ad. I'm not going to say what water I'm drinking. Even though maybe that's the way I can monetize this podcast. Who knows? <laughs> but the next book I'm going to talk about is Another Country, uh, which is a novel by James Baldwin. And I read this book two years ago. It took me about four months to read because I just um, I battled with the language, uh, the writing. Um, I read slowly so I could feel like I could understand uh, what he was like trying to say or what was going what was like really going on um so i I had no familiarity with this book at all uh before i read it uh i like james baldwin a lot i'm a james baldwin fan um i'd seen i'm not your negro uh i think a month before uh and i was like i gotta read me a james baldwin novel that seems like the proper thing to do after seeing that uh, documentary, which I thought was very good. Um, excuse me. Oh, Jesus. Oh, man. Sorry about that. <laughs> you know, it's my throat's going to be my throat. So, um, so I was reading this book uh, while I was going to Brooklyn College uh, when I briefly... I was there for a semester, uh, I left the program, that, that program, and I really associate, you know, my reading of this book, uh, my very slow reading of this book. I, I used to have, uh, well, hey, I had a treacherous drive there from Queens, and uh, I would leave really early because I didn't want to be stressed about getting to class late, um, and the parking was not phenomenal it wasn't like awful but it wasn't good <laughs> around the school um and i would often get you know there about an hour early um and read and uh, i was reading this book i guess that's not like as interesting <laughs> as my uh preamble uh to american psycho it's not as evocative i suppose i was just reading this book um and uh and it did take me a long time to read i thought it was phenomenal i really enjoyed it uh especially like the vivaldo character quite a bit um i i i just think he kind of got that character he wrote that character very well um and the beginning of the novel is quite uh impressive because uh, it starts with a drummer named Rufus, a jazz drummer, and he feels like the main character of the novel, and then something happens to him. <laughs> and then, you know, the book is uh, structured uh, incredibly well. I mean, as as good as Baldwin's writing is, pro the prose, um, the structure of this book was, like, as tight as, like, a noir, you know, like, of, of how cleanly it if it, it falls together like basically starting with rufus and the consequences of what happens to him ripple out through the rest of the book 
um and he's kind of hovering over everything that's going on he's still kind of the protagonist in a, in a strange way um throughout the book even though he's like not in about i'd say like 70 percent of the book uh, but yeah we meet his sister uh ida um and um we proceed from there and uh, her and vivaldo who's a writer he's they become involved with each other uh, interracial relationship this book is a, a lot of his focus is on interra interracial relationships in, in in a variety of contexts you know love dating business um friendship you know it, it kind of covers the gamut of relationships like in that context um and uh it has goals the the book as a whole i think works um but i think it, it works i i think it works best in the context of the scenes it, it kind of has like scenes where there's kind of like a drive within the scene to the scene kind of says its own thing which obviously you're always trying to do but baldwin does it so well in this book um so yeah uh with without further ado i feel like i'm kind of not <laughs> maybe not doing the best job talking about this for for whatever reason um i guess Hmm, I don't know. I, I guess because maybe I, I struggled. I guess I never felt like I, I even had like a handle on this book in any way, shape, or form. Even like looking back on it in hindsight. Um, but this scene is a quite an impressive use of music. Um, this is Ida, uh, who again is Rufus's sister. And she's an aspiring singer. Um, and she's doing her first gig uh, in the village, and uh, Vivaldo is there. Eric, the uh, actor from Europe who comes back home, is there. <laughs> um, and let's do it. Ida looked into his eyes with an unreadable smile which yet held some hint of the vindictive. She crushed out her cigarette, adjusted her shawl, and rose demurely. I'm glad you think I'm ready, she said. Keep your fingers crossed for me, sugar, she said to Vivaldo, and stepped up to the stand. She was not announced. There was merely a brief huddle with the piano player, and then she stepped up to the mic. The piano player began the first few bars, but the crowd did not take the hint. Let's try it again, said Ida in a loud, clear voice. At this, heads turned to look at her. She looked calmly down on them. The only sign of her agitation was in her hands, which were tightly, restlessly clasped before her. She was wringing her hands, but she was not crying. Somebody said in a loud whisper, Dig man, that's the kid's kid's sister. There were beads of sweat on her forehead and on her nose, and one leg moved out, trembling, moved back. The piano player began again. She grabbed the mic like a drowning woman and abruptly closed her eyes. You made me leave my happy home. You took my love and now you've gone since I fell for you. She was not a singer yet 
and if she were to be judged solely on the basis of her voice, low, rough textured, of no very great range, she never would be. Yet, she had something which made Eric look up, and caused the room to fall silent, and Vivaldo stared at Ida as though he had never seen her before. What she lacked in vocal power and, at the moment, in skill, she compensated for by a quality so mysteriously and implacably egocentric that no one has ever been able to name it. The quality involves a sense of the self so profound and so powerful that it does not so much leap barriers as reduce them to atoms, while still leaving them standing mightily where they were. And this awful sense is private, unknowable, not to be articulated, having literally to do with something else. It transforms and lays waste and gives life and kills. She finished her first number, and the applause was stunned and sporadic. She looked over at Vivaldo with a small childish shrug, and this gesture somehow revealed to Eric how desperately one could love her, how desperately Vivaldo was in love with her. The drummer went into a down-on-the-levy type song, which turned out to be a song Eric had never heard before. Betty told Dupree she wanted a diamond ring, and Dupree said, Betty, I'll get you most any old thing. My God, muttered Vivaldo, she's been working. His tone unconsciously implied that he had not been, and held an unconscious resentment. And this threw Eric in on himself. Neither had he been working for a long time. He had merely been keeping his hand in. It had been because of Eve's, so he told him, so he had told himself. But was this true? He looked at Vivaldo's white, passionate face and wondered if Vivaldo were now thinking that he had not been working because of Ida, who had not, however, allowed him to distract her. There she was, up on the stand. And unless all the, sing all the signs were false, and no matter how hard or how long the road might be, she was on her way. She had started. Give Mama my clothes. Give Betty my diamond ring. Tomorrow's Friday, the day I got to swing. So, yeah. I mean, what I really, really like about that like moment is uh, exactly that um, Baldwin doesn't force a definition upon something as indefinable as a singer's charisma and how technical skill can pale in comparison to, to that charisma and that connection. Um, and the way he describes it, I think, you know, like the way, the way that I hear it and the way like I've, I've looked at performers that I really, really like, I've actually thought this about like someone in particular that like it would like totally uh, apply to is that like limitations can be exciting when someone doesn't seemingly have a limitation to singing perfectly and hitting every note um that's like its own thing like that's certainly you know worth applause but when you see someone wrestling with their limitations on stage and kind of using that limitation to do this other thing that's on par with the perfection for its lack of perfection, you know, for its imperfection, as as a smarter person might have said the first time, um, you, you know, like that that can be that can be stirring, 
there's like a stirring quality there where the other thing like kind of leaves you in awe while this thing might rouse you into like a belief um almost in yourself um so um the limitation becomes a, a power a source of power while also still being there and that's like kind of what, what baldwin said it's like it, it, the, every the the impediments are, are are still there and we're because i am allowing myself to be so imperfect we are we are we're bringing them into the room we're bringing the the uh the failure onto the stage and um because it's there and it is strong and it's even happening right now because i'm not a great singer you know it's still or i'm not like a perfect singer or i'm not i can't you know yeah so i i think you know he got he got at that idea quite well there's a great story um i i'm sorry that i have to relate everything to bob dylan <laughs> but you know there was a mention of that no direction home that he would ha hang out around and the village and he'd be at the gigs and you know like i think even it might have mentioned that he he wrote sometimes in public um in, the, in those surroundings uh, but I'm not done yet with uh, James Baldwin um, and, and this book because um, uh, yeah Washington Square Park I think this this part's also so great um, this is after the gig's over and uh, Ida Vivaldo Eric and uh, who was the uh, I think the Ellis yeah the uh, the the talent manager who's quite a uh i think unlikable character in this book uh but he is honest about who he is and what he does um so you gotta give him that uh but they they go into uh washington square park and baldwin does another really uh awesome uh, description of music uh here they reached the crowded park at the bottom of fifth avenue Eric had not seen the park for many years, and the melancholy and distaste which weighed him down increased as they began to walk through it. Lord, here were the trees and the benches and the people and the dark shapes on the grass, the children's playground deserted now, with the swings and the slides and the sand pile, and the darkness surrounding this place in which the childless wretched gathered to act out their joyless rituals. His life, his entire life, rose to his throat like bile tonight. The sea of memory washed over him again and again, and each time it receded, another humiliated uh, Eric. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. And each time it receded, another humiliated Eric, and he was left writhing on the sands. How hard it was to be despised. How impossible not to despise oneself. Here were the peaceful men in the lamplight playing chess. A sound of singing and guitar playing came from the center of the park, idly. They walked toward it. They each seemed to be waiting and fearing the resolution of their evening. There was a great crowd gathered in the small in the small fountain. This crowd broke down upon examination to several small crowds, each surrounding one, two, or three singers. The singers, male and female, wore blue jeans and long hair and had more zest than talent. Yet there was something very winning, very moving 
about their unscrubbed, unlined faces and their blankly shining, infantile eyes and their untried, unhypocritical voices. They sang as though by singing they could bring about the codification and the immortality of innocence. Their listeners were of another circle, aimless, empty, and corrupt and stood packed together in the stone fountain merely in order to be comforted and or inflamed by the touch and the color or in the odor of human flesh and the policemen in the lamplight circled around them all ida and vivaldo walked together eric and alice walked together but all of them were far from one another eric felt dimly that he ought to make some attempt to talk to the man beside him but he had no desire to talk to him he wanted to leave and he was afraid to leave Ida and Vivaldo had also been silent. Now, as they walked from group to singing group intermittently, through romanticized Western ballads and toothless Negro spirituals, he heard their voices, and he knew that Ellis was listening too. This knowledge forced him, finally, to speak to Ellis. He heard Ida. Sweetie, don't be like that. Will you stop calling me sweetie? That's what you call every miserable cocksucker who comes sniffing around your ass. Must you talk that way? Look, don't you pull any of that lady bullshit on me. You talk. I'll never understand white people. Never, never, never. How can you talk that way? How can you expect anyone else to respect you if you don't respect yourselves? Oh, why the fuck did I ever get... Ooh. <laughs> I'm not going. <laughs> so, although I, you know, whatever. Um, it is part of the book, but the scene was over anyway. The What I was... Uh, my purpose is there. So, again, the description of the music. Um, whereas in the other scene, he's kind of just, you know getting at the relationship that that is going on between the performer and the audience, and he's doing that here. But I also think he's making a larger point about this time period and this music which emerged from this time period. And um, why the people of this time hungered to have this experience with this music and these performers. And um, that's something to keep in mind, you know, because everything kind of belongs to a time. And uh, different generations want different things uh, for communal experiences. And it's not even necessarily going to be music, like a lot of the time. But um, there's, I, I read. Um, there in, in the writing that there was something i think in the cynicism especially in new york new york city and what ellis represents there's something in the overwhelming overbearing cynicism and uh indifference um you know which would lead rufus to have the fate that he did um for the people uh, living in the city um to feel that um and kind of wear that and own that like as, as a part of themselves you know this kind of like coldness um that i can maybe just be talking about myself like living in new york right now and the things you see and um you just kind of what are you to do i mean right i mean you could do things you could try this you could do that but you know like things are some things you feel like are never going to change um but in, in this generation of people, they hungered for these voices. And as he describes, you know, the innocence, the innocence 
being associated with this music and that meaning something more than what people interacted with uh, or, or kind of being this uh, other power against that power. Um, so uh, I think he's getting at his time there in a way, in addition to the music. Um, and it's Baldwin. Uh, he's, he's good. So, um, yeah, so that's kind of it for another country. Um, I really thought it made a lot of sense um, to do Jazz Moon after another country. Um, not because um, the characters in, in the book are very different, but just in the way uh, the writing of the music. Um, again, not like overtly uh, sim similar uh, or, or whatever, but I, I do sense like, you know, it's, it's interesting like when you, when you sit down to do stuff like this, like you, you like you kind of see like a cross section that like you maybe you didn't see before between like like books um i mean the for instance like the next book i'm going to talk about the dead do not improve you know, violence is such an important part of that book uh, thematically speaking um it is like the core of the book in a lot of ways and of the part i'm gonna gonna talk about um I, I, on that level, uh, all of the, their writings, like, not really similar whatsoever. Uh, there's, like, kind of, like, a thematic cross-section going on between, like, American Psycho and The Dead Do Not Improve with its, um, uh, he, um, what's the right word I'm looking for? Heedless or just fearless or just commitment to putting violence at the center of a work of fiction as a as a primary concern and what that means um so in that way i, I do i do sense and uh in a similar like like fashion um jazz moon uh people similar to uh, another country try to uh, know themselves through their art and their art is uh, like they're the vehicle of their life and it takes them places uh it takes them to different countries it takes them into different relationships and um yeah so um this book like i like i said uh i i just finished reading um it's an impressive novel um ben charles is is the main character and uh he, he's a really um i i find i the thing I, I find so interesting about this character is how other he is, even in the context of his otherness. Um, he's he's just kind of almost like a, a vagabond, in a blue, you know, in a bluesy sense. Like he is like a blues song. Uh, his life is like a blues song, essentially. So, but there's kind of this quality of very and he is a poet and I, and I think like that kind of like the strange grace of of poets like he he has that like kind of like he's uh of the world but and he's in the world <laughs> but he's also i don't know like kind of elusive um he, he he's a he's an elusive person to to pin down and the the really cool thing uh, about the character like in that sense is 
how when he's like intermingling with a group especially with like a group of people that he that he meets in paris and how ultimately dissatisfied they are with him because he's so much of an individual and he doesn't reflect back what they don't realize are prejudices um what they think is kind of a sense of being cultured or being in touch with black people in, in this time period and their experience um is not at all and like while they might get that from someone else they might get like a, this almost like um reflection uh of what they what they want to hear what they want to see uh for their entertainment in a way um Ben doesn't give that to him because he's just so he's Ben Charles like he's an individual and he's had like this kind of really different like not kind of he's had like an extremely difficult life and he's not a bullshitter and like he he's he's obsessed with work to his own detriment um but he has to be to survive so kind of like his natural kind of tenacity um melds with this like need to survive in the context of being like a uneducated uh person especially like an uneducated uh black person from a from the standpoint of like going to college having a degree or having some kind of pathway into a comfortable life he does not have that like at all and um the other thing that i think joe okono like does so great here too with this character like from this standpoint is that like ben never like he doesn't get angry at like either like when he senses like that kind of more subtle racism like he does like he blows up and he fights with his lover baby back about how he's perceiving power you know paris now they they're living there and and stuff like that but like in the actual moment like he kind of like he keeps everything inside and it maybe like doesn't hit him until like afterward or like after he has like more of a perspective on things and that's kind of like unwinding of him um getting a grip and getting a clear idea of like the parisian white person's racism uh which is different and you know less dangerous than what he experienced in, in america but it's still you know ever present and dehumanizing it's just in a different way um so uh, but he doesn't like you know like throw down his glass at the table and like you know like something that might be satisfying to read in the moment like when you're reading we're like yeah like yes like fuck these people <laughs> like he never he like a very real person um who's a poet and has that like kind of like quiet gracefulness uh to him like um he keeps it all inside but because like he keeps things inside like that causes other problems for him um so uh, yeah ben charles um really fascinating character uh all of the characters in this book are you know extremely well drawn the way it moves from new york to paris uh cool uh i i um coincidentally have also read manhattan transfer recently 
I read Manhattan Transfer before I read Manhattan Beach, and then I read this book, so I feel like I'm, like, getting, taking this, like, time warp into New York City, and I'm, I'm fascinated by that. Uh, but, oh, well, and of course, I mean, the other clear connection to Baldwin here, obviously, um, is that Baldwin also uh, went to France uh, in Paris, and, uh, like, Ben, uh, just many, many years later after Ben. Uh, but that trip was, you know, undertaken by him. Uh, so, again, that's another reason why I thought um, it made sense. But uh, the other character I want to talk about before I kind of, kind of, like, setting up the scene is uh, Ben's lover, Baby Back, uh, who's kind of Ben's uh, conduit to, like, kind of, like, getting out of his, like, life of lies, basically, with, with his first marriage to a woman, even though he's a gay man. Um, so, and Baby Back, again, speaking of charisma, he's a charismatic uh, trumpet player. But Baby Back is a fascinating character, too, on the level of writing about ambition uh, and what that means and the difference between being someone like Ben who is a hard worker who works in the shadows basically like as a poet he doesn't have like an overt uh, artistic life basically which is another reason why people are always disappointed um, in in like talking to him or whatever or kind of wanting this like uh, rush of you know uh, like talking to like a great musician because there are, there were so many uh, black people who went to Paris in this time period to to play jazz and or be actors because um, there were opportunities available at that at that point in time so it made sense for them to be it made basic sense for them to be there but the thing like the really fascinating thing about baby back to me was like kind of the way like like this like driving emotion of your life um it it, it it can't it spills over to your relationships and and you can't kind of like quarantine your ambition as something that's going to like affect the relationship that you're in and the decisions that you make um if like if you're someone like baby back and you're determined to to get a first he wants to get out of new york then when he gets to paris uh he wants to be a big star um and he always kind of wanted to be a big star the entire time but like it's like if there's like uh like no like if you can't be like, have contentment um without other conditions in your life being met you know like exactly and there's also um um but like i'm 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 cure i'm interested in that because being like a musician myself uh, and a writer, like performance is like almost dirty in a way, and I, I'd rather <laughs> I'd rather have that relationship to it than it being something I, I luxuriate in. I've hit a point of uh, in kind of just whatever with it because I've been doing it a while, but if that applause is your main drive in life life itself like the the whole thing 
you know, and that that you know that and other things uh, become like an, an issue in their in their relationship. But it was it was um, the the patience and allowing that to unfold uh, along you know many chapters and letting that kind of boil and kind of come to a natural endpoint. I thought it was extremely well done too. Uh, the character development was really, yeah, like in that, in that, in that way. Um, cause again, like it makes sense, but maybe you didn't necessarily see it coming, you know, uh, in the beginning. Uh, so I'm going to read, um, I thought it would make sense, uh, speaking of baby back to, to read a gig, uh, at the club where, Ben is uh while while baby backs on the stage uh tearing the place up Ben is uh just a waiter um and that kind of like typifies you know their their situation in a way um so yeah let's get to it Ches Leroy was packed 12 tables five times the people they laughed and bragged and sucked down oysters and champagne while waiters paraded from the bar to the tables with bottle after bottle of it. And the people kept coming. Limousines deposited patrons dressed in tuxes and satins and diamonds. They crammed in where they could, at the bar, in corners, or on other people's laps. Leroy Jasper cruised to the club, chitting and chatting with patrons, feeling up women and directing waiters. Otherwise, he spent time at his own private table with a slim white woman, different from the one earlier, with dark hair styled in a sleek bob cut. Bob cut. Jasper nosed in close. They kissed with the sweet restraint of people who know that discipline exerted now will earn them more a ravenous night later. The band cranked. Baby back went at his trumpet, leading the band as like it was the last jam session. A woman in flapper regalia hauled herself onto a table, threw back a glass of champagne in almost one gulp, then let fly a spirited Charleston. Finished and sweating, she imperiously held out her glass to a passing waiter to be refilled. Ben had arrived late. There was no place to sit, and he chastised himself for his tardiness. He found a foot of unoccupied space near the bar and just stood in it until Leroy Jasper bumped into him. Don't look so serious, Jasper said. You're in the hottest club in Paris. Come over here. I'll introduce you to some people. They'll love you. He lowered his voice, accomplice-like. You know the French adore us colors, right? He escorted Ben to a group headed by the tabletop Charleston woman. Leroy, come here, she said, and kissed him on one cheek and then the other in quick succession. As earlier, Ben gaped at them, certain he never adjusted seeing such intimacy between a colored man and a white woman. Ah, Baroness Denuvi, Jasper said. Lovely to see you. Although I'm quite upset with you, you have not been here in some weeks, and I suspect you've been patronizing Ches Florence. Instead, I feel positively neglected. Mon cher, you know, I always find my way back. She batted green she batted her green eye she batted green eyes fringed with a quantity of eyelashes. She looked forty. Jasper laughed. Jay Voice presents Ben Charles, the new band leader's cousin. They arrived from the States this morning. My bad. Ben's not a waiter yet. He ends up a waiter later in the book. My bad. Uh, Baroness Denuvi's group cried, Ben View, as she guided Ben into a chair. This morning, you must be exhausted. You must have some champagne. She seized a, gla a glass from the tray of a passing waiter and shoved it into his hands. Merci, mademoiselle, he said. Mademoiselle, a seizure of laughter. 
her entourage followed suit. Monsieur, I am la Baroness Juliette Denovy. She tapped Ben's chin with her finger. But you had better call me Denny. She retrieved her own champagne and toasted to Ben and La Chaise hot. Her friends raised their glasses and cheered as if Ben were a soldier returning from the front. Are you from Harlem? Someone asked. Yes. Curiosity sizzled as chairs scooted closer and cigarettes were removed from mouths mid-puff. Josephine Baker is from Harlem. Do you know her? Afraid not, Ben said. I hear there are parties in Harlem every night and waiters who dance to Charleston as they bring the food and everyone sings the blues. Ben laughed. Well, that last one might be true. Denny sat with legs crossed, one arm on the back of her chair. A lovely man was next to her. He looked 20. When Denny placed the cigarette between her lips, he lit it automatically, as if by reflex. As you all know, Denny said, I've been to Harlem. I went to a divine spot called the Cotton Club. All the entertainers are Negroes and they are wild. The music is jungle-like, authentically African. The sets have a jungle motif and the chorus girls are dressed like natives. I think Leroy should do something like that here. What do you think, Ben? Can't say. Ain't never been to the Cotton Club. They don't allow Negroes. Sets ridicule. All the musicians and dancers were Negroes. They're allowed on the stage, but not in the audience. They don't let Negroes in. His revelation sobered the tipsy group. At first dumb with disbelief, the people offered Ben their pity, their outrage, which made him feel ecstatic but guilty too for ruining the party. Danny perked up. Do not worry about it, mon cher. You are in Paris now, garçon, and corps du champagne. He had started his fourth class when the lights dimmed and Leroy Jasper took to the stage. Messieurs, dames, Ben Movies, Aches Leroy. Bear with me with the French, please. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for coming to the hottest club in Paris. We have the best of everything. The best champagne, the best food, and needless to say, the best dressed, best looking people. Sister this crowd tonight may be the most beautiful Chesley Roy has seen in recent memory, but with beauty comes danger. You stunningly lovely ladies had better beware, because I see a number of wolfishly handsome gentlemen whom I, I suspect are on the prowl. It's never a good night to go home alone, is it, Miss Bio, Monsieur? Forgive my irreverence, c'est vous plait. I'm only trying to loosen you up as if shrinking up every last drop of my champagne isn't accomplishing that already. I swear, Miss and Miss, I stock and restock enough of the stuff each week to intoxicate a small country. Well, just as important as having beautiful people in an ocean of champagne is providing the finest jazz in Paris, which we do each and every night. Allure is with that in mind. Ches Leroy presents to you Les Chanteurs de Paris, the songbird of Paris, Mademoiselle Gloria Fairchild. The crowd thundered. The lights darkened. The band swelled to a frantic tempo. Glow shimmied down the spiral staircase to the stage. What a sight in her sleeveless gown of golden flashing clinging material. The low-cut bodice hugged her breasts. Her snug skirt amplified the slope of her round hips as it draped to the ground. A short train trailed in, the, in back. Her hair was fashioned to a simple graceful bun. Glow glowed. She and the band discharged a snappy number. Now, I gotta say, man, in this book, this is one of them, but, like, the blues uh, lyrics in this book, like, for the, you know, many, many performances throughout the book, like, because there's music at all times, like, in this book almost, like, the blues lyrics are so great. I mean, there's a few, like, whoppers in there, like, that are, like, funny, like, very, very funny to read. Um, th this one... Is uh, nights are for loving, so be sure to treat me right. 
Touch me sweet and tender, and I won't put up no fight. Come on, baby, squeeze me till the early morning light. Papa, if you're satisfied, come back tomorrow night. I mean, that's a little more boilerplate. Uh, there's uh, earlier in the book. Uh, there's this amazing uh, blues uh, lyric about a uh, fire, fire, fireman, <laughs> and a hose, and it's it's funny. Uh, that, that was earlier when they were in New York. Glow's voice was robust, with low and middle notes that bellowed or growled, and high notes that rang. The big smile on her face opened up her voice, added some light, and she enchanted the audience by singing to specific people in the crowd and winking or flirting. They say rainbows come from heaven, but I don't believe that's true. I believe that rainbows happen when I think of lovely you. My misty heart beats like a drum. My blood warms up like fire. Papa, come on, love me quick and quench my soul's desire. Then the band took over, igniting a wildfire. From the pounding of the piano keys to the bludgeoning of the drums to the thundering brass to the thrumming banjo, the heart of the wildfire, baby back. He was the match that lit the flame, the gasoline that maddened it, the wind that fanned it. His trumpet stormed above the band, cutting a musical path right through Chaz Chesley Roy. It was his big night, and he worked it. Eyes closed, knees caving to the floor because he couldn't control the music roaring through him. That first number put the crowd on its feet. They just about mobbed the stage after the second, but the third blasted Chesley Roy off the map. It opened like a dirge, a low-down, slow-down blues. My man treats me evil, I won't even tell you no lie. My man treats me evil, I won't even tell you no lie. But if he ever leaves me, I'll lay my body down and die. Glow sang like she was already dead inside. Her plaintive tone made you want to belt the guy who broke her heart. Steals all my money, gambles every dime away. Steals all my money, gambles every dime away. But when he comes home broke, I give him more anyway. Glow's vocal was the main attraction, the band a partner that affirmed her lament. But out of that affirmation, Baby Back's trumpet dawned. She would feed him a phrase and he would take it, embellish it, feed it back. If Glow contributed the main theme in this blues concerto, then Baby Black applied the variation as they, phrase by phrase, seduced the audience down to the primrose path to the blues. The song was part gritty gospel shout-out from the back alley bars of New Orleans, part sophisticated ballad from the chai-chai night spots of Manhattan, part earth, part air, all blues. Goes out with other women, leaves me by myself alone. Goes out with other women, leaves me by myself alone. I just pray when morning comes, He'll bring his loving self back home. My friends tell me leave him, cause he only makes me blue. My friends tell 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 me leave him, cause he only makes me blue. They don't understand it. The man's the best I can do. When it ended, the audience brawled into cheers. Glow and Baby Back descended from stage and into a love fest. They greeted the crowd separately, shaking hands, giving and receiving kisses. Danny took to the tabletop again while her entourage gush. Sist. Fantastic. So, there you go. That's Jazz Moon. And another, um, like, interesting correlation between another country and Jazz Moon. And the two scenes I read, one was Ida's debut in The Village, and the other was Baby Back's debut in Paris. So that's another uh, interesting cross-section that happened just, like, while I was doing, you know, getting, getting the, the episode prepared. So, um, and yeah, I thought it was important to read the material with Ben at the table. 
Um, Because I think Joe Kono did a great job there, you know, for, for a reader like me who doesn't know anything basically about Paris in the 1920s other than maybe like a couple like surface level things but really I didn't know anything the way he like slowly like again like unveils the uh the prejudice underneath the seeming acceptance um not and again not making it like because all this music resulted and real camaraderie and he's not putting that down by any means but he gets a you know underneath it's still not like a uh uh it's not an equal arrangement uh in a lot of ways a person-to-person arrangement it's it's kind of like a entertainment on and off the stage basically um uh despite like you know i'm sure there were plenty of genuine relationships that happen and the irony is that he ultimately ends up with someone who's white um and uh that's kind of like the the remedy for the even though that's like a difficult (laughs) that 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 their relationship's difficult too but that's like that genuine person-to-person interaction is a remedy uh for the the more kind of surface um bill you know billboard like you know come you know look at the billboard of you know this jungle motif or not a billboard i'm sorry like a poster outside a theater you know like um and that being being you know supposed to be like (laughs) a quality or whatever when it's not um it's only in the interpersonal interaction and what's going on in the interpersonal reaction so and again like it's so interesting to think because it's like so much of baby back's life is about that moment on stage um which is kind of like this dream the dream world you know where these these finer points of interpersonal communication fade away and uh yeah so it's it's interesting to think about so um next up we have as i as i mentioned uh before uh the dead do not improve this is actually the one book um you hear me like opening stuff (laughs) i didn't have this book um the the hard copy of it um i read this on a kindle seven years ago uh when it came out but this was actually um i'm just getting everything ready which i i should (laughs) have i should have had it ready um i have like a few parts of it i want to read um i I definitely the the crossroads uh part is kind of like the main uh thing i want to read um but this book i read because i was a still uh i think over a year away from applying to the new school which is where i ended up and that's where i really try to be try to be a writer or whatever but this was actually in a time period where i was um getting into prose uh in 2011 um i had only really written screenplays as creative writing projects at that point um up to that point and i was i've still i don't know if i've ever really written a decent screenplay i've tried i've written 
a few. I've written like five. The ones I wrote, the first ones I tried don't even really count, but <laughs> screenwriting's difficult like everything else, obviously. Uh, but even at that point, this was like seven years ago, I was feeling like I needed a change of pace. And I really thought of prose uh, when, I, when I first when the workshop that I ended up taking, um, I was like, well, this is a thing I could do without a slug line. Because <laughs> I was like fucking sick of like the tight structuring of a screenplay, the slug line, scene description, dialogue. And I think it was starting to feel robotic to me. Uh, in hindsight, I, I wouldn't have probably described it that way at the time. But I wanted like more room for you know, just writing, like, you know, imagination or whatever. So I took this prose writing workshop, and it was around that time period when Grantland launched. And um, Grantland was pretty great. Um, and uh, it's too bad that it didn't, you know, that it shut down, because uh, it was an excellent long-form sports writing website. Um, and Jay Caspi and Kang... I just started reading his articles and I thought every one of his art, I, I would like read whatever he wrote and I really liked it. And one of the, one of the first things I wrote by him was a reflection piece about Ichiro. And he actually, um, also ended up doing a lot on Jeremy Lin as a uh, Lin sanity, uh, the miracle. What else can you, what else can you call it? Right. At this point, Six years later, the miracle of insanity uh, happened in New York City uh, in 2012, and, and he wrote great articles about that. But the first thing he uh, I read of his was um, just this really excellent, reflective piece about Ichiro. And um, I was like, wow, I really like this guy's writing a lot. I remember I was reading another one of his articles uh, on an occasion, and I got to the end, and it was like, he's coming out with a novel and you can, I think the, um, excerpt, there was an excerpt of it available for free. I read the excerpt, thought it was great. And, uh, bought the book and I, and I read the book and, um, I've always felt like this book is pretty amazing. And, and again, in that sim similarity to, to American Psycho, not in the writing style, but in the, inten in the intention to bring violence to the forefront of a novel in a way of like, how are you to deal with, with the violence? How do we deal with violence? How do we not deal with violence? And what, what is violence? Um, and uh, again, the, you know, the word like kind of, like fear, fear, fearlessly doing that because it's not an easy thing to do. Like, there's a lot of considerations you have to have uh, when you're writing a novel. You know, you got like, really depends on what you're doing, but like, usually you have to have like some kind of plot going on, even if it like is really just like a, a framing device, like in a way, like a plot is like a framing device. Like, so there's some kind of a story that the reader's turning the pages on and again people some people don't even do that but they're more talented than certainly i am <laughs> and uh but you have a lot of considerations but then to kind of have the intention to to say like i'm bringing this very destructive thing to the forefront of the book's con you know it's like my forefront concern here as an or as an author uh, and 
and uh, how he does it. And I feel like, you know, in the, in the scene I'm about to read, I'm going to elaborate more on, like, what I think of the scene now. Because this is, like, the kind of book... I definitely can't summarize the book. And it's been, like I said, it's been a few years since I read it. And it's intricate. It's very, very intricate. Like, you know, there's Philip Kim, and he's a writer, but he's, it's like, kind of landed at, like... He, it's very very funny he, he kind of like works at this like terrible like company that gives like dating advice but like <laughs> it's funnier it's funnier than that I'm doing like a, a terrible job of describing it I was actually just reading the other night um, one of the like he ends up writing like the same message basically to two different people <laughs> while um, while just changing the names and changing their job title and his friend's like oh god how are you doing this and he's like i need the money <laughs> basically um and then there's like a detective character finch who i always uh i thought the description of him is basically looking like keanu reeves was uh awesome um it's a it's a really um what's the word i'm looking for i have it on the tip of my tongue subversive book it's a subversive book because it takes a form again that's like um one, one of the sensibilities of the book is noir um and uh that's like kind of dominated by uh white male authors and kang like turns a lot of things uh those sensibilities like on their head by by, by doing like a subversive uh kind of take on the on the genre um and I think I even felt like, you know, just reading it as like a white person. I don't know. I don't know if this was intention, but uh, for instance, with like the Finch character, I, I thought it was funny um, to call him like Keanu because it's, it's like this kind of like gen generic uh, kind of white face. Um, that Keanu is obviously like a megastar celebrity, but it's in that way you sometimes hear like, you know, white people say like, oh, like all these people like look the same or like this you know like like that kind of like racist thing and it's kind of like you know here's this like white guy that like he's like Keanu Reeves I don't know like I don't know what else to say like he looks exactly like Keanu Reeves you know and like you believe it you're like yeah you're picturing like Keanu Reeves basically um and uh he there's also another part like that later uh when when Finch is like surfing and uh, he's like name dropping, you know, like uh, you know, notable musicians and stuff like that. Uh, Chris, Chris Isaac, for one, uh, and it's just like an interesting, like subversive uh, way of describing uh, things. Um, and I actually think uh, Brady Snellis uh, would like really appreciate that because um, you know, I, I remember I was reading one of his interviews or I was listening to the interview and someone asked him like what do you make of the criticism that you like use like song lyrics or like you talk at length about like albums that are very specific to the context of like a contemporary period or the period you're writing about uh if it's like the 80s or whatever or whatever it might be and uh are you worried that's going to be dated and he was like absolutely not like like i think he said like james joyce did like the same thing and also people i feel like have lost kind of um touch with novels being something that are in culture they're almost like out of culture right now you know in a really frustrating way where 
they're not it's like oh it's a novel it's like what someone like cultured reads in like their new york city apartment or like some bullshit like that or it's like what you know like they're not like what infiltrating the mainstream and like um but that's a whole other i don't i don't feel like getting into that but like i don't think that it invalidates the intellectual um reasoning behind like doing something like kang does in this book or or like ellis does because it's you know you definitely get a clear impression uh, of the of the character and there's like a subversive like cultural thing going on too that's that's cool but the part i'm gonna read um and taking this back to violence um excuse me i got come on Oh, there we go. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> I figured out how to make it work. Okay. All right. Got it. This is towards the end of the book. And it's toward the end of the novel. Um, it's kind of like the climactic moment of the book. There's about to be um, gunshots fired in a, in a club, in a music club. Um, and it certainly has, like you know, disturbing implications to, you know, like, the things we deal with on an everyday basis living in America right now. Um, and I feel like there, there's um, that point being made in, in, the, in the violence of what's going on and the confusion of what's going on. But um, let me read this part, because this is um, before the, the shots actually ring out. And um, it's one of... Anyway, let me, let me just read it. Because... Every time the crossroads comes on, everyone, well, everyone I know at least, starts singing along incoherently but smiling, and I, who know the actual words, feel cheated at least a bit, because there are only so many songs a bunch of kids who grew up together can sing together without feeling territorial, nasty, or horny, and when these moments come unforced, it's nice to be thinking the same things as everyone else. I understand I'm being insufferable insufferable <laughs> I have trouble pronouncing bulls uh, at the end of words it has occurred to me several times over the years to just go ahead and fake it mumble along with the crowd and hit the only distinguishable parts that everyone knows can anyone anybody tell me why we die we die we die and the unmistakable feet splitting and I miss my uncle George and yet Ellen's radiant face, a swimming pool at night, the kids stomping around incoherently babbling along to the song, which could have been about anything really. How would anyone know? But by dint of the music video, which featured some overly lit, dry, ice-choked stage on which the five bone thugs solemn angels clasped their hands and pleaded for the angel of death to not take away their friends, that we all knew was about death, and not our deaths, but a scattershot brand whose quickness we would never quite comprehend, and of course, the understanding that my days on earth might end tonight, all of it, dare I say, the synthesis of these melancholy, conditional thoughts open up a battered vault of nostalgia. I staggered a bit. I thought of Ron Zim, Ronnie Zim, bone thugs, quesadillas, and plastic bags. For some reason, I felt very sad about my sister. Once all this was over, I was gonna give her a call. So, um, and then basically right after that, the, the bullets, um, start flying. 
basically. So I'm gonna try my best um, to explain um, how has um, what what I what I think, because like like I said. Um, I've thought a lot about this book since I since I read it, and like because it's so confusing, and because it's so intentionally confusing, um, it stayed with me uh, since since I read it. Um, so I I feel like the the crossroads is a perfect song for for the scene because he's describing the experience of being. Um, in a club and a song comes on and everyone starts singing along to it and, and the communal experience of that and, and he has kind of like a territorial feel for the song because of um, this you know friendship he had um, in the past and uh, how they used to like listen to hip hop together so like it's an, like for me like this this song like in a, in a fascinating way because of the the style employed uh the singing style employed the the words um can be like they can sound like indecipherable right like a blur um and he, and he makes note of that he's like you know people will sing along to the parts they understand um but not to the parts they don't understand and within kind of your listening experience of this song like his point in the scene and like almost the novel as a whole even though like the novel i feel like says like a lot of things it says like micro things too um in addition to like the big things it has to say but like the indecipherable nature of the song is kind of paired with not being able to understand the experience of the people responsible for the song the artist responsible for the song so while you're singing along to the part that you think you understand that's kind of like almost metaphorical or emblematic of how we uh kind of like a cultural we of people who aren't like in this type of neighborhood basically growing up or this kind of situation growing up where you could be randomly killed but then again like i on a greater like note like the rise in mass shootings um and the feeling of like no matter where you are no matter who you are some something could happen so like there's and that that is what ends up going on too like you know in in the in the scene that follows like the the song choice the music choice and it's uh, reflective of the book's own struggle with writing the, the violence. Um, writing like what violence is, it's just like um, blow to the head and you're, you're bleeding. And like the blood's like running down your eyes or whatever and that you're trying to see. Like it's, it's that confusion, you know, it's that like confusion and, and uh, fear. Um, and how do you put that into words? Um, so like, right like that's how i kind of feel about that and maybe um i i maybe that does make sense like and when i was like thinking about how i was gonna like try to like explain that um 
I was like, man, but maybe that kind of, like the songs, um, right. It's the songs emblematic of what the character is observing about like life itself, um, where it could pertain to someone who grew up in a brutally, you know, rough neighborhood where they, they could randomly be killed for no reason. Um, and that's what they live with on a day to day basis. But, that feeling is like permeating through the the, the violence uh, is is like uh, radiating out into like all forms of of uh, experience and for like the communal crowd all for I'm sorry not all forms of experience I'm t- I'm sorry I shouldn't that wasn't the right word like all all strata I should say or something like that like strata class strata or whatever wrong place wrong time you know like that kind of thing. And that's like always been a part of life. You know, that's why people like move to the country because <laughs> they don't want to be around other people. But like in that context, in these fearful times of, of these shoot- shootings going on, you know, for the community, that's what really like struck me when I was reading it like seven years ago. I even remember that striking like such an emotional chord with me, like the singing, the communal singing of the song. Um, as if like now everyone is um, experience, you know, like, and it's not just this, and and also kind of like the horrible um, implication of that to begin with, that like one set of people, because they're growing up in a certain place, are just going to have to, that's what they have to live with, um, uh, you, you know, like, bef- you know, beforehand or like, bef- you know, so it's just, it's very heavy shit. Um, you know, like, <laughs> and, um, it's the part of the book that, like, always stuck with me, but there, there's, um, other, other parts, too, um, connected to, he does these scenes where Philip is hanging out with this <laughs> buddy, he has, uh, Hong Jae, and, um, they go out and they drink together, and I, and I think Kang does a unbelievable job kind of writing, this like male relationship like based around like booze and like lamentation and disappointment and disillusionment with life and how like the line between you know and these like relationships that are like based on this like mutual contempt for the world almost like you know in a way an alienation um where does that spill over and become like violence in and of itself like like when does uh, not like literal violence, but like, like, what does it mean? Like, you know, like, what does it mean for someone to like make a joke about like the Virginia Tech Tech shooting as a means of coping with what happened? You know, and this is the way like they're they're coping with what's going on. But like, um, I feel like this great sense of um, in this book, this like confusion about like identity. And identity being something like painful in a lot is something like branded onto the the the, the person. Um, it's it's these you know there's there's this other great character in the book. This is like a this is a, so smart. Like there's another Philip Kim in the book who's a detective and he's completely different from the Philip Kim that who's the protagonist. And they have like this this kind of um, they have like a lot of friction 
like as uh, the detective is investigating but he the detective really doesn't like the type of korean that that philip is or what he represents to the detective and um again it comes back to like identity like someone having the same name as you or um yeah i guess i'm doing i I could be doing like a better job articulating things i suppose (laughs) i could be but there there's amazing uh scenes those huang jay uh scenes um you know referencing ichiro and and these like you know, drinking and being drunk like it just really hit home for me um myself reading it even though like obviously like I'm, I'm a white person obviously um but like on a human level um that kind of disillusionment and and coping with drinking and um and just kind of like spiraling down this like you have this like fear that you're horrible person um you you look at what other people do um and in the in the case of the character in this book it's it's what what the 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 shooter did um there you know what i mean like um but like in in my case you know you look at like what's around you or whatever or like what you experience and um you how do you how do you cope with um the darkness that could be inside of you or that has already like maybe like been there already in your life um you know like so like yeah like um that didn't have as much to do with with music obviously but connecting it to the scene i read uh, the the crossroads again. It comes back to this confusion, and um, this um, confusion, like as a communal experience, um, and this this need also to want to know, um, hmm, and like the line. I don't know. Yeah, it's that kind of a book. That's what I'm saying. It may it makes you think like these kinds of like heavy like philosophical and it's also just like fascinating from a style stylistic that employs a lot of different styles uh, literary styles um but I did the, the scenes with finch like really do hearken to like classic like noir uh noir uh storytelling um so it's just like this fascinating brew of of things uh going on and uh, I, I really like I highlighted like so many things like I to read, and I realized like it's really that scene that has like the music in it, and the other things kind of like support uh, what I'm saying about the music. So I'll, I'll probably like lay off uh, reading like the the scenes uh, in the barroom scenes, for instance, or the great scenes with um, the the detective. Um, but you know, like. There's also these references to like a cultural craziness, you know, like, um, and whether you know the fear that that could actually exist. And I, I, I mean, I'm half Irish, so like, you know, like, you know, that idea of like, oh, you're like a crazy, you're crazy Irish fucker, or like you're crazy, like Italian or whatever. And like, you know, Philip also deals with that as well um, in his book, like the confusion of that. Like, what if when like culture is your 
kind of technology or whatever, for lack of a better word, or your like way of like knowing yourself. And then that kind of like scatters away in these like intense moments of experience. And like, and you're left like asking yourself, like, what if like that shit that like I ignored and like lent no credence to once, what if that is like more real than this uh, person I'm imagining myself as like in culture? as like someone who like listens to a band so like that like says something about like who i am which which it does but like it can feel like alienating in its own way and uh the book um gets into that so although i only read um i really only read that one part uh because uh, the other stuff you know that i did like have like prepared doesn't deal like <laughs> it's just uh, i'm saying like you know the, the writing's like great all over the place in the book and uh check it out man uh, if you know because like if you like dig like some of these like styles or whatever it like does so many different things um and speaking of uh changing styles uh, on the fly in the same book uh jennifer egan uh we have come to the end the end of the road hold on a second i gotta have another water sip of water I want to read this scene from A Visit from the Goon Squad, and I knew I was going to use this book for the purposes of uh, the podcast, obviously. Um, and I like said to myself, like, what, what am I, what am I going to use though? Because there's so many great musical parts, and I kind of was rifling through it trying to make that determination, and I came to this. Um, excellent scene that i think is kind of an appropriate closing moment to the podcast because whereas these other scenes deal with like music and action songs uh this deals with like kind of the, the business side of things um and it's a scene between scotty and benny who uh grew up together and were in the same punk band together and then they um reconnect in new york uh, many many years later and benny's a successful uh record executive he's actually the president of a record label and scotty's kind of you know getting by he's like an artist getting by and um what i really love about this scene um a great deal as it pertains to music and art um and you know the novel as a whole or whatever but like the scene's all about power and like what power is and like what power does in the context of you know here we have we, when we meet scotty like when the sequence is beginning he's kind of a content person he's like a janitor um and he maybe could do so i'm not putting that down whatsoever it's like what he does but like maybe he could have done like something more than that possibly because uh, you know he he's like you know really really intelligent so he could be using like his mind to like you know like for for money you know or whatever but he he's not interested in that and he's like kind of this contented person and he, and he feels he's come up with this like philosophical solution to life that uh i'm gonna read you know like when i'm reading the scene um that he seems um like I said, content and stable and secure in kind of his perceptions of the world, which are way off the grid and they're very much his own. And he, he's basically like a philosopher. And 
the scene with Benny, he's still drawn to, to see his old friend who could theoretically help his music career, possibly, or could maybe ask for a favor. And as the scene unwinds, I, I feel Jennifer Egan does an amazing job, like, basically, like, through this, like, really modern conversation, getting at, like, primal aspects of power. Power is, it's, like, real you know, it's like not in anyone's head. It's like not in perception. Like Benny has an office. He has this amazing view of Manhattan. He has like records, you know, like, well, I'm not sure if he does, but I'm picturing it myself. He has like records, you know, in his office, like gold records in his office or whatever. These like, it's tangible. Like power is more tangible than someone's personal philosophy. You know, if someone really sticks to their personal philosophy, there will not be intimidated by somebody's power and you'll see scotty you'll see the interesting way that the power ebbs and flows in the in the conversation where scotty begins to doubt himself and really by thinking about an old relationship uh, that's gone um he's like doubting his entire life and all the decisions he's made all because his old friend is sitting behind you know a desk um and is quite a successful person and it kind of throws him for a loop but th then also like the scene takes another turn after that where scotty puts benny kind of on his heels because at a precise moment where he could have had like a more predictable reaction to the situation he actually does like stay strong in his and believe in his perceptions um and that kind of like turns things back the other way so there's like a really uh, fascinating power play but like going on there but like as it pertains to, to music it's this music as we know it as consumers of music it's a mix of commercial interest and artistic um skill or, or whatever you want to say um, <laughs> depending on like what music you like and what music you don't like, I, I suppose. But this is really putting putting that you know this is it right here. This is the resolute philosopher and the 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 guy who used to be a musician and because he was a musician now he's a great businessman. So it's people who have gone in entirely different directions in their lives and from these opposing viewpoints and these quite different people we we kind of like this is like what it is basically um so i felt like uh, on that note it was an appropriate um scene to end on i mean i don't know like i can't sit here i mean you know a visit from the goon squads you know you know, I'm not gonna like sit here and like, like I said, summarize you know the book and everything. So, because <laughs> people know what it is. But anyway, um, let me read it. I'm actually gonna start before the meeting to give you an idea of just how confident he is in his perspective, Scotty. 
I tested my theory by standing outside the public library at 5th Avenue and 42nd Street during a gala benefit for heart disease. I made this choice randomly at closing time as I was leaving the periodicals room. I noticed well-dressed individuals tossing white cloths over tables and carrying large orchid bouquets into the library's grand entrance hall. And when I asked a blonde gal with a notepad what was going on, she told me about the gala benefit for heart disease. I went home and ate my string beans, but instead of turning on the TV that night, I took the subway back to the library where the heart heart disease gala was now in full swing. I heard satin doll playing inside. I heard giggles and yelps and big scoops of laughter. I saw approximately 100 long black limousines and shorter black town cars idling alongside the curb, and I considered the fact that nothing more than a series of atoms and molecules combine in a particular way to form something known as a stone wall. Yeah, this guy's out there. Stood between me and those people inside the public library, dancing to a horn section that was awfully weak in the tenor sax department. But a strange thing happened as I listened. I felt pain. Not in my head, not in my arm, not in my leg. Everywhere at once. I told myself there was no difference between being inside and being outside. That it all came down to X's and O's that could be acquired in any number of different ways. But the pain increased to a point where I thought I might collapse and I limped away. Like all failed experiments, the one that taught me... That one taught me something I didn't expect. One key ingredient of so-called experience is the delusional faith that is unique and special, that those included in it are privileged and those excluded from it are missing out. And I, like a scientist unwittingly inhaling toxic fumes from the beaker I was boiling in my lab, had, through fear, through sheer physical proximity, been infected by that same delusion and in my drug state had come to believe I was excluded, condemned to stand shivering outside the public library of Avenue and 42nd Street forever and always, imagining the splendors within. I went to the russet-haired receptionist's desk, balancing my fish on two hands. Juice was starting to leak through the paper. This is a fish, I told her. She cocked her head, a look on her face like all of a sudden she recognized me. Ah, she said. Tell Benny pretty soon it's gonna stink. I sat back down. My neighbors in the waiting room were a male and a female, both of the corporate persuasion. I sensed them edging away from me. I'm a musician, I said by way of introduction. Slide guitar. They did not reply. <laughs> Finally, Benny came out. He looked trim. He looked fit. He wore black trousers and a white buttoned and a white buttoned at the neck, but no tie. I understand something for the very first time when I looked at that shirt. I understood that expensive shirts looked better than cheap shirts. The fabric wasn't shiny. No, shiny would be cheap, but it glowed like there was light coming through from the inside. It was a fucking beautiful shirt, is what I'm saying. Scotty man, how goes it? Benny said, patting me warmly on the back as we shook hands. Sorry to keep you waiting. Hope Sasha took good care of you. He gestured, he gestured at the girl I'd been dealing with, whose carefree smile could be roughly translated as, he's officially not my problem anymore. I gave her a wink whose exact translation was, don't be so sure, darling. Here, come on back to my office, Benny said. He had his arm around my shoulders and was steering me toward a hallway. Hey, wait, I forgot, I cried and ran back to get the fish. As I slung the bag from the coffee table into my hands, a little fish juice flew from one corner and the corporate types both jumped to their feet as if it were nuclear runoff. 
I looked over at Sasha, expecting to find her cowering, but she was watching it all with a look I would have to call amused. Benny waited for me by the hall. I noticed with satisfaction that his skin had gotten more brown since high school. I'd read about this. Your skin gradually darkens from all those cumulative years of sunlight, and Benny's had done so to a point where calling him Caucasian was a stretch. Shopping, he asked, eyeing my bundle. Fishing, I told him. Benny's office was awesome. I don't mean that in the male teenage skateboarding sense. I mean it in the old-fashioned literal sense. The desk was a giant jet black oval with a wet, wet looking surface like the most expensive pianos have. It reminded me of a black ice skating rink. Behind the desk was nothing but view. The whole city flung out in front of us, the way street vendors fling out their towels packed with cheap, glittery watches and belts. That's how New York looked. Like a gorgeous, easy thing to have, even for me. I stood just inside the door, holding my fish. Benny went around to the other side of the wet black oval of his desk. It looked frictionless, like you could slide a coin over the surface and it would float to the edge and drop to the floor. Have a seat, Scotty, he said. Wait, I said. This is for you. I came forward and gently set the fish on his desk. I felt like I was leaving an offering at a Shinto shrine on top of the tallest mountain in Japan. The view was tripping me out. You're giving me a fish, Benny said. That's a fish? Striped bass. I caught it in the East River this morning. Benny looked at me like he was waiting for a cue to laugh. It's not as polluted as people think, I said, sitting down on a small black chair, one of two facing Benny's desk. He stood, picked up the fish, came around his desk, and handed it back to me. Thanks, Scotty, he said. I appreciate the thought, I really do. But a fish is bound to go to waste here in my office. Take it home and eat it, I said. Then he smiled his peaceful smile, but he made no move to retrieve the fish. Fine, I thought. I'll eat it myself. My black chair looked uncomfortable. I thought, lowering myself onto it, this is going to be one of those hellish chairs that makes your ass ache and then go numb. But it was without question the most comfortable chair I'd ever sat in, even more comfortable than the leather couch in the waiting room. The couch had put me to sleep. This chair was making me levitate. Talk to me, Scotty, Benny said. You have a demo tape you want me to hear? You've got an album? A band? Songs you're looking to have produced? What's on your mind? He was leaning against the front of the of the black lozenged ankles crossed, one of those poses that appears to be very relaxed but is actually tense. As I looked up at him, I experienced several realizations, all in a sort of cascade. Benny and I, number one, Benny and I weren't friends anymore, and we never would be. Number two, he was looking to get rid of me as quickly as possible with the least amount of hassle. Number three, I already knew that would happen. I'd known it before I arrived. Number four, it was the reason I had come to see him. Scotty, you still there? So I said, you're a big shot now, and everyone wants something from you. Benny went back around to his desk chair and sat there facing me with his arms folded in a pose that looked less relaxed than the first one, but was actually more so. Come on, Scotty, he said. You write me a letter out of nowhere, and now you show up at my office. I'm guessing you didn't come here just to bring me a fish. No, that was a gift, I said. I came here for this reason. I want to know what happened between A and B. Benny seemed to be waiting for more. A is when we were both in the band chasing the same girl. B is now. I knew instantly that it had been the right move to bring up Alice. I'd said something literally, yes, but underneath that, I'd said something else. We were both a couple of asswipes, and now only I'm an asswipe. Why? And underneath that, something else. Once an asswipe, always an asswipe. And deepest of all, you were the one chasing, but she picked me. I've busted my balls, Benny said. That's what happened. Ditto.
We looked at each other across the black desk, the seat of Benny's power. There was a long, strange pause, and in that pause, I felt myself pulling Benny back, or maybe it was him pulling me back to San Francisco, where we were, where we were two out of four flaming dildos. Benny was one of the lousier bass players you were likely to hear, a kid with brownish skin and hair on his hands and my best friend. I felt the kick of anger so violent it made me dizzy. I closed my eyes and imagined coming at Benny from across that desk and ripping off his head, yanking it from the neck of that beautiful white shirt like a knobby weed with long tangled roots. I pictured carrying it onto, into his swank waiting room by his bushy hair and dropping it on Sasha's desk. I rose from my chair, but at that same moment, Benny got up too, sprang up, I should say, because when I looked at him, he was already standing. Mind if I look out your window, I asked. Not at all. He didn't sound afraid, but I smelled that he was. Vinegar. That's what fear smells like. I went to the window. I pretended to look at the view, but my eyes were closed. After a while, I sensed that Benny had moved closer to me. You still doing any music, Scotty? He asked gently. I try, I said, mostly by myself, just to keep loose. I was able to open my eyes, but not to look at him. You were amazing on that guitar, he said. Then he asked, are you married? Divorced, from Alice. I know, he said. I meant remarried. It lasted four years. I'm sorry, buddy. All for the best, I said. Then I turned to look at Benny. He was standing with his back to the window, and I wondered whether he, if, he ever, if he ever bothered to look out. If having so much beauty at close range meant anything at all to him. What about you, I asked. Married. Three-month-old son. He smiled, then a waffly, embarrassed smile at the thought of his baby boy, like he knew he didn't deserve that much. And behind Benny's smile, the fear was still there, that I tracked him down to snatch away these gifts life had shoveled upon him, wiped them out in a few emphatic seconds. This made me want to scream with laughter. Hey, buddy. Don't you get it? There's nothing you have that I don't have. It's all just X's and O's, and you can come by those a million different ways. But two thoughts distracted me as I stood there, smelling Benny's fear. Number one, I didn't have what Benny had. Number two, he was right. Instead, I thought of Alice. This was something I almost never let myself do. Just think of her, as opposed to think about not thinking about her, which I did almost constantly. The thought of Alice broke open in me, and I let it fan out until I saw her hair in the sun, gold. Her hair was gold, and I smelled those oils she used to dab on her wrist with a dropper. Patchouli? Mask? I couldn't quite remember the names. I saw her face with all the love still in it, no anger, no fear, none of those sorry things I learned to make her feel. Come inside, her face said, and I did. For a minute, I came inside. I looked down at the city. Its ex extravagance felt wasteful, like gushing oil or some other precious thing. Benny was hoarding for himself, using it up so no one could get any. I thought, if I had a view like this to look down on every day, I would have the energy and inspiration to conquer the world. The trouble is, when you most need such a view, no one gives it to you. I took a long inhale and turned to Benny. Health and happiness to you, brother, I said, and I smiled at him for the first and only time. I let my lips open and stretch back, something I very rarely do because I'm missing most of my teeth on both sides. The teeth I have are big and white, so those black gaps come as a real surprise. I saw the shock in Benny's face when he saw, and all at once I felt strong, as if some balance had tipped in the room, and all of Benny's power, the desk, the view, the levitating chair, suddenly belonged to me. Benny felt it too. Power is like that. 
Everyone feels it at once. I turned and walked toward the door, still grinning. I felt light as if I were wearing Benny's white shirt and light was pouring out from inside it. Hey, Scotty, hold on, Benny said, sounding shaken. He veered back toward his desk, but I kept walking, my grin leading the way into the hall and back toward the reception area where Sasha sat, my shoes whispering on the carpet with each slow, dignified step. Benny caught up with me and handed me a business card, sumptuous paper with embossed print. It felt precious. I held it, I held it very carefully. President, I read. Don't be a stranger, Scotty, Benny said. He sounded bewildered, as if he'd forgotten how I had come to be there, as if he'd invited me himself, as if I were leaving prematurely. You ever have any music you want me to hear? Send it on. So, yeah. And again, like, that scene, like, talking about music, you know, someone like Baby Back has to deal with someone like Benny, um, I'd probably rather take Benny than the people Baby Back actually deals with. But that's probably like the difference in brutality compared to the 1920s, compared to, I would say, uh, that part of the book, Goon Squad. I, I think it might be, I'm pretty sure it's the mid-90s, I think, possibly, or the late 90s. I could be wrong about that, though. Um, so, you know, I think that scene kind of speaks for itself. You know, like freedom you know like what is freedom like is freedom possible like can you think your way to freedom and then you like walk into your old friend's office and he's successful and suddenly you're perceiving his shirt as glowing because it's it, it, they're nice threads you know so like yeah i i think that kind of might sum it up um from the standpoint of like mu musician confronted with business and um it's funny like scotty's as much an artist and musician as he's like trying not to be he's even more so that's another like fascinating thing the his his like powers of negation give him amazing powers and almost like it's almost like a, a mushroom in like super mario brothers you know like his um <laughs> almost um a, a, um what's the word i'm looking for uh, aesthetic or whatever um aesthetic aesthetic that's what i mean it's like it's late folks i'm a little tired but like that type of commitment he has to not doing anything almost gives him like magical powers by the end of the book um and the funny thing is, like, the end of the book with Scotty at the concert harkens back to the innocence uh, that James Baldwin's talking about, because people hear that innocence in Scotty in the troubled future moment of, of uh, A Visit from the Goon Squad. The, the book jumps into the future, and it's amazing. Uh, that That is such a cool thing. And... Um, they can't get that purity um, seemingly anywhere else except from this guy who um, was like David Bowie's song, The Man Who Sold the World. I mean, even in this um, instance, you know, Scotty can maybe get a record deal just because he knows Benny. And, you know, maybe he, he would maybe like make a little bit of money i mean it's the 90s you know like you know like at this point it was a different time in the music business you know artists would get like advances to make records um before they even 
um, went in the studio. They would get paid to go in the studio. I mean, that never happens anymore um, for someone trying to get signed. So, um, yeah, it's that kind of ironclad commitment to these weird... <laughs> I think they're weird. <laughs> highly intelligent, but highly... Um, I don't even know cryptic or I don't they're actually there's a lot of clarity I wouldn't say his principles are cryptic but they're just um very specific to him I would say and uh, his commitment to those things um and isn't it interesting how he still has those feelings for for Alice and it's kind of reflective of why he even stepped in the office in the first place because he still has like feelings for Benny and maybe being a musician um, similar to the feelings he has for her where it's over but he still has feelings for it and maybe this is like a Rubicon he crosses where that's it you know like I'm really not doing anything I'm really not trying to do anything now and that leads him to being like a big star in like 20 does it specifically say um <laughs> what year that was what, 2048 i don't know no that's too far ahead for the characters yeah i think like 20 my, 2020 i think maybe i should know that but again um like um a couple of the other books it's been a long time for me to know the specifics i read goon squad uh four years ago or five five closer to five than four so speaking of years but yeah man i'm about spent it was really great to do a new episode of Strange Currencies, man. It's been so long since I've done one. Um, and I'm happy uh, with this idea. I'm glad this idea came to me. Um, I hope you've enjoyed listening to the episode. Um, I would highly recommend reading any of these books. <laughs> They're good. <laughs> All these books are really, really, really good. Um, so, you know, if you're on the squeamish side, maybe not... If um, violence and literature isn't your thing, um, uh, American Psycho might not be your bag, baby, but um, it's, a, it's a great book as well. It's uh, brilliant. So, um, yeah, you know, I'll catch you next time. Uh, who knows, maybe I'll do an interview uh, with somebody. I haven't done one of those in a while. Um, or maybe I'll come up with another idea that I deem worthwhile because it's only the best for you, my dear listeners. And on that note, uh, I am Matt Waters. Uh, thank you for joining me uh, for another episode of Strange Currencies. And uh, where I am, it's pretty late. So good night.